1: talking about how he played the violin. And uh, we'd like you to see it now.
2: When I give a concert, I must play as well as I can. It isn't funny if I give a concert and I try to play badly. Now that's about as unfunny as anybody can be, is to take the violin and try to play badly. The only reason my concerts are funny is because I play heavy numbers, classical numbers, and I try to play them as well as I can, and I just can't quite make it, and that's what's funny. I'm
0: going to play the if
2: they'll let me. I'm going to play the uh, the Mendelssohn Concerto. Well, that's September 27th, then. I know.
3: And
2: then... this is the fourth. It's gonna take me that long for a to learn it. Leave me alone. <laughs> no. Because you're the only musician that's getting paid. <laughs> Who's getting paid? You're the only one.
1: Honestly, God? Yes. <laughs> Isaac Stern, would you uh, is that how you met Jack Benny through the violin? Yes, well, partly. Uh, we first met, actually, doing something that Jack did so often, a benefit. Where we played together. That was the first time we knew each other we met each other in any way and then he asked me to do a couple of shows with him and Hollywood which we did and we became very fast friends you know I don't know if people really realize what Jack did for music in this, in this country he really loved the violin the one thing he had most deeply was respect for music and respect for artists he never denigrated the artist He always made fun of himself. And then he would do these concert tours. In fact, I was his manager, practically. I would arrange for orchestras to invite him and he'd do these benefits for them. And I think he raised more money individually for the symphony orchestras, for their pension funds, for the musicians, than any other single individual. It must be well over two million, two and a half million dollars that he raised over the years. And he did love to play. He worked as as much as he could and he would always have the violin with him, he would go to concerts, he would come whenever there was a chance for him to come and to hear a concert where I was, if I was anywhere in the area, he would come in. Did I, did I hear you say that you gave him a particularly heavy mute to place on the violin? Well, Mary, <laughs> Mary objected sometimes to the sound of his practicing, so there was a very, what we call a wolf mute, a heavy leaden mute that cut the sound of the violin down by to about 10% of its normal uh, harshness. And he he would put this on, and then then he could practice in some uh, uh, small room not too far away where she couldn't hear him. But, you know, I was watching as Johnny Green was speaking a moment ago and Jack Parr. And I was struck by the one thing that they were saying about Jack, which is so true of him. In all the years that I've been on the stage and met people in various professions, in various parts of the entertainment world, I've never heard one single word ever said against Jack Benny, nor by Jack Benny about anyone else. He was he was the least venomous, the least malicious, the least jealous person I've ever known. There was always a gentle, radiant warmth about him. He was loved, admired, accepted everywhere as a human being, not because he was Jack Benny the star, but Jack Benny the man was a lovely human being. I put a question to the two of you. What was it in Jack Benny that enabled him to go on at the top for so long?
2: Well, I think he was the greatest that radio ever produced. Uh, radio was a, a, an art of imagination and no one used it better than Benny. Pauses, for instance, were far better than takes. And uh, I, I regret that children, young people today, do not
1: understand or know that well, how greatly entertaining radio was. Mm but how really, truly great this Jack Benny was. But he managed to get from radio to television, even into the movies. What, what was the quality that he had that, that conquered all? He had great style, he, he had great timing. Timing. Hopefully. Many of us are Most imitations of, of Jack. No, timing, more, more than anything else, it was just a sense of knowing when and where. It's very much the same way the musician does. Much of, much of music is how to get from one note to another in a certain way, and it's this 2nd split second timing in between the notes, and in Jack, the way he put the words and then waited when to put in the shaft of laughter. He always knew when.
4: Yesteryear Valley Who Review.
5: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Valley Who Review. I am your host, Zach Eastman. And there will now be a slight pause while you say, oh, Christ, he's doing that slight pause gag again. Oh, where's the nearest episode of all the best lines instead? Uh, yes, when you hear that joke, that can only mean one thing. It's another Jack Benny related episode. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait! A- Yes, when you saw that it was episode 39, you knew this was going to happen. We gave you plenty of warnings, and you only get a 39th episode once, guys, just like you only get to be 39 years old once. Our subject for today excluded, of course, this was a man who was able to turn 40, but then went back a year because 40 wasn't as funny as 39. But before we get to the proceedings, I'd like to take a moment to tell you what we have coming up as well as a list of shows that the who hardly endorses for entertainment that is not Jack Benny-related. Well, almost. First off, for the remainder of September, we have a slew of discussions uh, coming your way that will tackle some heavy hitters. You will first hear an in-depth conversation of Jour de Fete with special guest Sterling Cook, a journey that finally brings us to the world of French cinema and the wonders it holds when it comes to comedy. After that, you will be whisked away by the winds in the east to number 17, Cherry Tree Lane, where, with the help of the Ballyhoo's own cheery chimney sweep, actor Matthew Murbach, we shall take on the mighty task of deconstructing our first-ever Disney title with a look at Mary Poppins. And to round out September, we shall indulge in a croissant outside of everyone's favorite jewelry store with the company of Miss Sabella Bala for a fascinating and, frankly, uncomfortable discussion when it comes to Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uncomfortable meaning, of course, Mickey Rooney. All that's coming this month. And in October, you'll be getting quite the treat, as The Ballyhoo will be giving you some fun Halloween episodes to indulge in, including an in-depth discussion on the works of James Whale, the return of Mr. Todd Browning, and the lesser-known but higher praise work of Mr. George Melford. That and maybe there will be a surprise or two. You'll have to wait and see. And as a preview for November, Thanksgiving will be coming a little early this year, as the boys from Pop Culture Brews will be returning for a long discussion about Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and Zeppo. That's right, boys and girls, it will be the first ever Marx Brothers special covering the Paramount films made from 1929 to 1933. The coconuts, Animal Crackers, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, Duck Soup, we will cover them all in as much detail as we can while trying to contain our own laughter. And then before we get to our show, ladies and gentlemen, let's take a minute to take a minute to address something very important. One of the wonderful benefits of Ballyhoo's format has been the chance to talk with some wonderful different show creators. And the Ballyhoo would be remiss if we didn't give a nod and salute to the shows that we have had on in our wonderfully illustrious 39 episodes thus far. We, of course, have some horror-related podcasts that have been attached to this wonderful endeavor. Uh, Not the least of which, Punk Rock Horror Podcast, uh, where Matt and Cody have dissected all things rockin' and all things terrifying each and every week into various forms of discussions that include band interviews, talks of serial killers, and movie reviews. Simple movie reviews, but with a twist of the terror. Uh, So, they are a wonderful group of people who I will be working with this coming month while Cody is on paternity leave. Um, But even if I wasn't involved, you should still be listening to those guys because quite frankly, they're a lot more fun than I am and they're a little bit more laid back. Um, But if you want even more laid back and maybe you want your horror podcast to come from the UK and maybe you want it to uh, have the adventures of a crisp man. And maybe you just want, a wonderful discussion with two lovely human beings talking about their love for the genre from anything from the classics all the way down to the lesser known titles. You can't go any further than something like rated H rated H is a podcast that is brimming with as much humor as it is insight into these various titles within the genre that still thrill and delight us to this day. And they also pose wonderful, questions for their audience to participate in, in such a way that gets you involved in the kind of discussion that you would have with your friends. It's a wonderful time. Check out Smokey and Ben on that wonderful show. And you can also check them out on another show, along with another guest we've had before, Mr. Kev Moore. And what's that? Secret History of Hollywood's Adam Roach? You bet. They're all sitting in the same house together with The House of Hammer, a new discussion show centered around the entire hammer horror filmography the hammer film filmography i should say got that wrong because they are covering the hammer films that existed before the most well-known titles as well so you've been getting discussions about paul robeson films about the mystery of the mary celeste about dick barton dick barton a title that i had never heard of until their show came along and now you guys can all experience that too on the house of hammer podcast Um, There is another uh, thing you think about when you think of Hammer. Sometimes you mix it up a little bit because Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, they all kind of ran around in similar circles with Hammer and another company, Amicus. And what better person to tell you more about Amicus than Mr. Kev Moore with Here Lies Amicus, a wonderful dissection show going into the other British studio of the era that produced seminal horror classics and not so classics that are dissected in a frank but fun manner along with his co-host Gabriella. And of course, if you're wanting even more of Kev Moore, who really, who doesn't want more of Kev Moore in their lives? He's the jolly bearded gent that we all need in our lives. And you can hear him additionally to all those other shows with the wonderful FilmGuff podcast, uh, the number one podcast on the internet for lowbrow films with high art discussion you will hear him and his co-host Allie sift through the different titles that have been relegated to a dustbin whether that be something as uh something as strange as the movie life force or even something as under discussed as out of sight they also tackle recent films that may garner some kind of ill reception whether that be peter rabbit 2 or mortal Kombat, which they loved as did i Because Mortal Kombat was fun. It's fun, guys. Just have fun, Uh, and you know, if you're, but if you if you heard all of that, but you're still wanting some golden age goodness, well, look no further. Our friend Rated H and House of Hammer Smokey, he's got your back because he's not just a master of horror and a master of hammers. He is also a bad boy of Golden Age Hollywood, and that's exemplified by his wonderful show, All the Best Lines, which he does with the illustrious Adam Roach, where they go through titles that Smokey has not seen, or has seen, doesn't matter. They go through these titles, and they have a kickback discussion, and then talk about what they love about the film, what they may not have liked about the film, give it a star rating, and kind of talk about how... Golden Age Hollywood isn't as inaccessible as many people might think it is. It's a wonderful open environment that I hope you all enjoy.
6: Greetings.
7: My name is Adafi
5: and of course though we've been we've been in the british isles for a little too long but we need to stay there a little bit longer because there is another podcaster who has been making some waves of his own within coming into this sphere that is mr jamie dyer who shows old time review the hudson's and a brit talks vintage television have been wonderful additions to this little ballyhoo collective to Have viewers get another perspective on old media of the past, as well as listening to attempts at new radio dramas. I mean, who doesn't want some new radio dramas in their lives? You can't just listen to the same ones all over again. Sometimes you need a new fresh voice, and Jamie's got it for you guys. Check out all of his wonderful work. Then, of course, you want some more film discussion after all that. After all that, you still want more film discussion. You guys are just insatiable. You just can't get enough. And luckily, Jack Hanley has your back with the Superlatives Film Podcast. As you heard in his wonderful discussion with us about Night of the Hunter, Jack spares no expense when it comes to the hyperbole and, as its namesake, the superlatives that can be applied to the many films that have to be offered to the world of cinema goers at large. And it is a welcoming, open environment that encourages film learning and film growth rather than telling somebody oh you didn't watch this how dare you go off in that corner we say no come into this corner and this it's the corner called the superlatives you gotta come into it it's really fucking fun um, and you know it doesn't have to all be highbrow cinema too sometimes you just want a little bit of nerd culture in your life you know you need something with a little bit of a pop uh, a wham or maybe that first word I said pop and you need something that's a little bit positive uh, what's another word for positive optimistic I've got it pop podcast with anthony kuba and brent ballard those two wonderful jolly sugary gents who brought such laughter to our discussion about vincent price and the last man on earth well you can listen to them each and every week with pop Optimistic, talking about all things nerdy and all things cuddly and all things wonderful you also get fun little ads in between where they get to make up little ads it's really fun i really like it um and if you need another pop in your life you know and you're a beer drinker i'm not a beer drinker myself I'm not a drinker at all anymore, but I do love good pop culture discussion, and I love it when a passion tied to that pop culture discussion uh, is brimming to the surface, bubbling, if you will, like a little bit brewing. I know, pop culture brews, that's what we'll call it, pop culture brews with Andrew Sanders and Tyler Maybe, who take a piece of pop culture, do way too deep a dive on it, and then give you a recipe for a beer that they have crafted for that particular item of pop culture. And I do understand they have an episode coming up about Sherlock Holmes with some idiot who rambles on too long and long and long and long. But that episode aside, there's wonderful episodes, including an appearance upcoming by the Pop Domestic Boys. So check out the Pop Culture Brews. You won't want to miss out on that. And, of course, sometimes you don't even want the movie discussion necessarily. Sometimes you want to learn about a new person. You want to learn about something different. And luckily, our friend John Ekstrom is here to give you a little bit more variety in your life with his long-going series, John of All Trades. John of All Trades, of course, is the kind of podcast that will introduce you to several different occupations that you may not have even thought of even attempting in your life and yet he is here to tell you that they do exist and here are the people who have succeeded in those realms and you can listen to him each and every week from the x-axis and hey if it wasn't for him would i really be saying welcome 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 to the yesteryear valley review thanks john i got you back and of course sometimes you want a little bit more of what today's discussion is going to be and i can't think of another person more suited to that task than to listening to the wonderful Hope Sears with all of the classics. Her show covers a variety of subjects from Steve Martin all the way down to Johnny Carson. And I even got to talk a little bit with her about Mel Brooks. It was a wonderful discussion, one of many that she has to offer on her lovely podcast, which you can check out through her pages. And of course, we can't forget about that one lovely gentleman who gave us so much laughter with a discussion of the infamous Carlo from my man Godfrey, that's Phil Vecchio, and he has two wonderful shows that you need to be checking out. The Mandarian Orange Show is one of them. It's it's a wonderful show with him and his wife where they talk about their daily lives, their different challenges through life, as well as their love for traveling, traveling across the country and seeing different sites with their kids. Such lovely human beings that you just want to listen to and hang out with all day long. And sometimes you want to hear Phil talk about one of his favorite subjects, which is family ties. And you can't go wrong with his own series on that subject. Alex P. Keaton is my friend. Again, two lovely shows from one lovely gentleman that you owe it to yourself to check out. And, of course, this show started with one simple man. A man with a dream to talk nothing but trauma that's right the show that gives you a dissection of a trauma title each and every week with a special guest in a way that shows zach's lovely passion for the subject of trauma and the house that uncle lloyd built and by the way if you want to hear some proof of his love of trauma just listen to him sit down with uh, our special guest from last episode lloyd kaufman who is the founder of tra- founder and president of trauma where you can hear him and geek geek out all over the place. It's so wonderful. I loved doing it with him, and I loved getting to talk to Lloyd about Golden Age Hollywood. So, you know, just another wonderful thing that has emerged from this podcast. And all of these shows can be found in the show liner notes, and I will be posting them on our Twitter page because we want to support the podcasting community that surrounds us. And additionally, you can listen to The Real Nerds Podcast, which I am a part of, but also features past guests such as Henry Jarvis, Brad Haig, Ryan Frost, and coming soon, Corinne Westerman. Hmm, We'll have to see what happens there. So that's all to say we have a wonderful podcasting community that should be supported and encouraged as independent creators, but also as friends. So to all my friends at the Ballyhoo, I salute you. And now, for those who decided to stay around, we will get to the topic of the day. Jack Benny. Hey, wait, 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 don't get up, don't get up, please. Please, if you'll indulge me, if you'll just indulge me for a moment or four. I think you may find yourselves quite entertained. Not unlike how I was when I first gotten into my now decades-long obsession with the stingy, vain, but altogether lovely comedy hero who never quite made it to 40. No, thankfully... He stayed 39 for our benefit, one of the many long-running gags that helped firmly cement a legacy that finds itself into nearly every aspect of comedy you find yourself enjoying today. Whether it's the appreciation of side characters, the -the off-the-wall parodies, the exaggerated characteristics of our star, or observing the mastered art of comedy timing, nearly all of these traits have found themselves into our modern world of comedy in some form or fashion. From the timing element alone, you can trace lineage to to jack with performers such as bob newhart kelsey Grammer, and of course johnny Carson, folks who ended up carrying the same innate sense of timing to those that learned under them as the years went on there's also of course the elements of benny's show that many found to be the foundation of what we know as the sitcom or more appropriately the behind the show sitcom format or even more appropriately shows about nothing all three of them kind of intertangled together in some form or fashion. And there are ideas throughout the Benny tenure that carried their traits into many forms, whether it was the long running gags and plot threads on something like Seinfeld, a show about nothing, kind of like how Jack's show was kind of about nothing. Stuff just happened on Jack's show, but it's not anything specific. It's no contrived plot. Something just happens. Uh, but again, something but nothing. Uh, But also the behind the scenes elements that would form the Larry Sanders show. It's Gary Shandling, 30 Rock, you know, getting a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of what it is to put on a show. And amidst the ways you can look to see how Jack influenced the world of comedy. One thing will always be certain with all these other things in mind. Funny is funny. It's been the case for Abner Costello, Bob Hope, Burns and Allen. And it's certainly the case for Jack Benny undoubtedly the only man out there who could get a laugh by saying nothing. The weird and wild art of reactive comedy that miraculously worked on radio for over 20 years and logically for 15 years on television. Now, before we get into the main presentations, I have a surprise in the form of some Hollywood history. Uh, Before television and before radio, Jack was a movie star. One of the many being cold at that point, he was latched up by the charms of MGM's boy wonder Irving Thalberg for what would be their trial period of determining the new talents of filmland in a world that now contained sound.
6: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard
5: nothing. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Jolson, I've heard that many times, but thank you for reminding me. Uh, Yes, in an effort to play catch-up, the Tiffany of Hollywood studios, MGM, decided to go in on the sound business in many big ways. The grandest of all these efforts would be the two extravaganza musicals produced in the year 1929, the Broadway Melody and the Hollywood Review of 1929. The Broadway Melody was a full-scale production, including central plots that would become the earliest formations of the modern musical in many respects and avenues, and would also win the first Sound Film Academy Award for Best Picture. But the Hollywood Review of 1929 was just that. A review. R-E-V-U-E, wink-wink, or specifically, a showcase that was utilized to display talent in a variety setting, with only the tag-team master of ceremonies to tie the proceedings together. For the Hollywood Review of 1929, one of the MCs was Conrad Nagel, a matinee idol from such films as 1918's Little Women, and the now-lost Todd Browning Chiller, London After Midnight, and then the other one was Jack inasmuch as the two switched off between portions of the film to tie together the acts that consisted of a song and dance from the soon-to-be-bright Miss Joan Crawford, the sound debut of the already-trending Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, the cinematic debut of the song Singing in the Rain, and the noted recreation of the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet with the luminous Norma Shearer and the legendary John Gilbert, whose career took a downslope in many ways tied to this film and the purported notion that it proved that his voice was too squeaky and high-pitched to make it in sound films. This notion, of course, is entirely without merit, by the way, and when one watches the performance, one can clearly hear a normal voice range given the equipment at the time. John Gilbert was just fine, guys. Yes, all of these and so much more were abound, including a very special sort of cinematic wizardry. To help us learn more about it, we shall have to turn through the pages of a book called From Hollywood with Love by Bessie Love. If you are puzzled as to who Bessie Love is, the Ballyhoo shall summarize. Born in Midland, Texas, a young Miss Love was actually Miss Juanita Horton. Her heritage consisting of a bartender father and a restaurant manager mother, the family packed up their bags and moved on through the many western parts of the country before settling in Los Angeles. While in high school, Juanita had a run-in with the noted actor Tom Mix. Juanita, desiring a career in film, was told by Mix to meet him on the set to discuss it further. But on the day she arrived, Mix was nowhere to be found. Who was there? D.W. Griffith was. Regardless of the reasonable ill reputation he possesses now, Griffith was rather respected in his day, to say the least. And it was there that Griffith took... A chance by putting Miss Horton under a personal contract. And as with all things in Hollywood land, under the advisement of Griffith's assistant Frank Wood, Miss Juanita Horton became Bessie Love. New name intact, she would travail the silent era beginning with D.W. Griffith's Intolerance and would caravan through the era step by step, making her name known for such films as The Flying Torpedo, The Good Bad Man, Souls for Sale and the innovative special effects film The Lost World. By the time sound had emerged to the cinema world, Love was touring with a traveling musical review, and with the promise of stage work, she did not feel really that she had much to lose by demanding all or nothing when it came to the Hollywood executives and their promise of sound film. But the Hollywood executives demanded a screen test in this new, uncharted territory. Through compromise, Love performed the screen test while in essentially a layover in L.A. amidst her work on the stage. And the executives at Warner's saw fit from that screen test to put her in her first sound film, a short called The Swellhead. The test was also met with approval for the executives of MGM, who then ported her over to the Culver City lot for the productions of the Broadway Melody and the Hollywood Review of 1929. While Melody would provide Love with praise and an Oscar nomination for Best Actress... Hollywood Review was more a chance to show her stage-bound talents for the camera in a variety fashion. It's in Review where Miss Love makes an entrance so unique that it required the up-to-date technological in-camera advancements that had been made up to that point. And if what Miss Love says is true, the whole idea was Jack Benny's. I'll let Miss Love take it from here.
8: Is
7: what they used to These crazy have made a
6: resume. My vocal line is kind of weak. It seems to have a system. It
5: needs adjusting, so i a- With the great success of the Broadway melody, MGM had overnight changed their output from silent to sound production of films. They followed it up with the Hollywood Review of 1929, whose cast list reads like a who's who of Hollywood. Every actor was under contract to the studio, and they were all stars, or had been, and were now supporting players like Marie Dressler, who soon, after many years away from studios, would become a big film star again on the same lot in movies like Tugboat Annie and Min and Bill with Wallace Beery. In our review, Marie Dressler burlesques Cleopatra, singing I'm the Queen. Laurel and Hardy throw pies at each other. Babe Hardy finally falling face down in a cream cake big enough to take care of their antics for some time. Buster Keaton does a dance of the Seven veils a la Cooch, but deadpan. Polly Moran sends up Your Mother and Mine after it has been sung straight by Charlie King. Conrad Nagel was very popular at that time, but who knew he could sing? Yet you couldn't have asked for more dulcet tones. Then he renders in You Were Meant For Me, sung to Anita Page. Joan Crawford, who had been a dancer in her pre-Hollywood days, does a number. So does Marion Davies, with 9,000 cadets in West Point uniforms. Then Marie, Polly, and I. I'm Marie, I'm Polly, I'm Bess. Clad in toddler's rompers, do a poop-poop-a-doop, take off of the Brock sisters' close harmony singing in the show, and ukulele Ike Cliff Edwards, Charlie King, and Gus Edwards complete our sextet for Strolling in the Park One Day in Floradora Costume, which by trick photography must be the fastest strip change on record. Throughout, Jack Benny and Bill Haynes do a two handed compering of the show, Jack making unhelpful explanations about each act as he introduces it. One of the first, if not the very first, strikes in the film industry was taking place at that time. As yet we had no Screen Actors Guild and American Equity, the Straight Actors Union was hoping to establish one. They forgot one thing. Strike action does not affect contract players, and almost all the well-known ones were then under contract to some studio. The only people able to refuse employment were a small handful of freelance players. Lois Wilson was one, Jetta Goodal was one, And the little dancers, male and female, who were always engaged by the picture anyway. The studio couldn't have cared less. It was no trouble to find pretty girls out home and they could all dance. Someone just went to the beach, bellowed, and all the swimmers came dancing in. However, there were no male dancers around. None with experience. So very quickly, a line of those had to be found for one thing. For me because I was doing another little number for the Hollywood Review of 1929. Harry Rapp, an old hand with vaudeville from way back, was supervising the film and called me into the office to say they'd come up with the idea that everybody should do something to surprise, something an audience had never seen them do, or better still, something they had never attempted before. At which point he asked, "'Have you ever done an acrobatic dance?' I was so startled, I didn't have time to get out of it. Why no, I stammered. Fine, that takes care of you, he said. Go see Sammy Lee. Sammy was the choreographer. Well, I always wanted to learn acrobatics, how to fall and all that. Down at the beach, I had once asked Keaton to teach me. And he said, let me see your wrists. Took one long look, laughed, and pushed me away. Weak wrists are no... I had seen one of the pretty routines Sammy Lee was dreaming up while I was in New York. It's pretty if performed by a good solo dancer supported by many strong, clever male choristers who rehearse for weeks until they work together like a team. You take two lines of them facing each other and holding out their hands. Then you, with your feet held firmly by the center of the line, relax. Back on the hands, half the line up, whence you are flipped up, twisted in midair, and allowed to land on the other half of the line of outstretched hands waiting to catch you, theoretically. Doing this a couple dozen times non stop can be very effective seen from the front, and also from the rear. These bright young men had never set eyes on each other before. They had took me by the heels to swing me back and forth like the handle of a fan opening and closing. The first time we tried it on hoop both sides, they must have thought I was suddenly going to put on weight. All gave one mighty heave, and I was sailing out over everybody's head, landing on the backs of my heels in another part of the studio. We tried again. The same thing happened, only this time I sailed away to the other side. and Once more, I dropped straight through their arms on the hard floor. And this was the only one out of many acrobatic routines. After each session, I'd go to the studio osteopath to have things snapped back into place, and my legs leveled up, and I spent as much time with him as I did with Sammy and the boys. Then somebody had the bright idea of letting the boys learn the routine first and practice throwing around the real acrobat, which they did, the little ballet dancer daughter of one of the electricians who danced on point in Wedding of the Painted Doll in the Broadway melody. When we came to shoot it, I was trussed up with adhesive tape like a football player to ensure that I remained in one piece. My glamorous costume was slipped over the top and all the protective taping which showed down the front and most of the back was cut away. Thus I did a number called, I never knew that I could do a thing like that. Jack Benny thought up the introduction to my number. He said, she's so little, why can't I take her out of my pocket? You can do that in pictures, can't you? He was intrigued with the potential of film. Trick shots which make people little or enormous, or cut them in half. He thought of more ideas. After he had taken me out of his pocket, I was to stand on his hand and talk to him in a squeaky voice until he set me down. And I grew up.
2: Just one happy family. <laughs> Now, folks, I have a little surprise for you. I'm going to introduce Bessie Love. And I have her right here in my pocket. I had her here a minute ago. I... Bessie, where are you?
8: Here I am, Dad. <laughs>
2: now, what are you doing over there when I put you in this pocket?
8: I don't like that pocket. There's nothing.
2: Just like a woman. You can never tell what pocket you're going to find her in. Now get out of there, Bessie. That's where I keep my money.
9: But I can't get out. My foot stuck on a $20 bill.
2: Can't be my coat. Now come on, Bessie. Come on up. Get up on my hands.
8: Gee, it's good to get out of that stuffy pocket.
2: There you are.
8: Oh, Jack, aren't you the same Jack Benny I met in Atlantic City?
10: No, no, oh,
2: no. Now, step over there, Bessie. Don't trip. No, I won't. <laughs> a girl. Now, grow up and I'll talk to you.
8: Well, there you are.
6: Say, are you sure we haven't met before? Don't you remember that... I don't remember anything.
5: The studio agreed. It was a wow. But what Jack didn't know was that trick photography, always time-consuming, is therefore done after everything else has been shot, while the bridging music is being written. This was Jack's first film, and he had no notion of how long things take. He had been a vaudeville headliner for years and had just taken off a few weeks to do our review, after which he was to continue his tour from San Francisco. We started making Hollywood Review and went on and on making it. Every once in a while, Jack would approach the director, Chuck Reisner, and tentatively inquire in his helpless way, Oh, Chuck, you won't forget about that shot of me taking Bessie out of my pocket now, will you? Oh, no, Jack, you see? And Chuck would launch into a technical explanation of how it was to be done. The whole stage had to be completely shrouded in black velvet, My tiny figure, the height of a thimble, standing on his hand, was a trick shot, naturally. Then a dolly track had to be laid in the full length of the stage so that in the distance I would look tiny, and as the camera approached me, I would appear to grow big. Jack listened, mesmerized, the first time he was told all of this. The next time he still wanted to hear it, well, yes, he'd been told how it worked, but it was still magic. After the third, fourth, and fifth times he suggested, why not just let her wave hello? At the end of several weeks' shooting and the final okay, Jack simply disappeared. He left so fast that he could have taken off his own coattails as, still in dress suit and makeup, he boarded the Lark Flyer for San Francisco. Now, if Miss Love's account can be taken as gospel, it would mean that Jack, for all of his experience in vaudeville, was aware that film had the power to do something even vaudeville can't do, literal magic, even if the process of magic was in itself quite the furthest thing from easy and simple. This Bessie Love pocket scene utilized the black velvet technology that would become perfected for films of all kinds that desired an impossible effect of the era, Arguably today, Black Velvet's greatest artistic triumph comes from how it turned Claude Rains invisible for 1933's The Invisible Man, how it made Dr. Pretorius's odd miniature creatures in The Bride of Frankenstein, and of course, how it created tiny people able to do the vengeful deeds of Lionel Barrymore in The Devil Doll. That's arguably the greatest of them all. So it's clear, and will be even clearer going forward, that there was so much more to Mr. Benny's film career than just the one Lubitsch picture. But of course, we all know and love Mr. Benny from the power of radio. Radio, that art form where the mind paints a picture it cannot conjure with the flickering projector, must do it with the tubes and lights inside, and the warm glow gives you some kind of image of a world that could be. And from many that you'll speak to... You will find that Jack is cited as one of the medium's great kings because of how singularly brilliant the show was at utilizing the format to its advantage. The natural course of thinking would be that the incredible voice talents on the show were the answer, and that would be a wonderful answer. Another answer would be, logically, the innovative use of sound effects that have arguable perfection in the form of his famous underground vault, which required all the tools that a master sound man of the era could conjure to achieve pure and brilliant absurdity in a way that furthers the cheapskate routine. And of course, there was the wonderful way in which Jack would say nothing. How he would hold the silence for as long as his intelligent timing would allow before giving the response for Jack timing was everything. Something your host for this evening knows nothing about from that previous example back there. And thankfully you will not need to hear me ramble any more um, than is necessary tonight. Cause the Ballyhoo will be presenting to you examples of all those things we've mentioned by giving you four episodes of the Jack Benny program for your listening pleasure, with some asides by yours truly in between each episode to provide some context over certain situations regarding the episodes. Now, for curating this, there posed a challenge. Do you play the hits such as Your Money or Your Life, or Jack giving a panhandler 50 cents, or even the episode with the longest laugh involving Jack's ego deflation in front of Dorothy Kirsten of the Metropolitan Opera with just two words from Mary? that is a way, but another would be to try to do two things. One, play two episodes that tie into discussions we've had on the Ballyhoo before. And two, play two jack shows dedicated to the thing he, the man himself, adored so much, the violin. We chose the latter, as it is fun to listen to anything featuring Mel Blanc as the begrudged French violin teacher. Before we get to the violin, though, we shall kick off the affair with a broadcast pertaining to the imminent release of 1940s Buck Benny Rides Again. That's right. We're going back to Buck Benny. And one of the lovely things about this is that you will now at last, as the Ballyhoo audience, be able to listen to the Buck Benny routine as it was before it was transfilmed into the film that we discussed. That instead of dealing with a showbiz figure pretending to be a Western hero actually dealt in the fantasy realm of the Western heroics dreamscape. This episode, done in Los Angeles a full month and change before the premiere of the film in New York, sees the gang speaking about their preparations for the trip to New York, and showing the relatively new tenor on the show, Dennis Day, what a Buck Benny sketch was. At the time Dennis entered the show, the Buck Benny sketches were three years past, and done during the tenure of Kenny at the Circus Baker, who was Jack's singer before Dennis. You will also hear the core Benny cast of not just Dennis, but also Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, yours surely Don Wilson, and Eddie Rochester Anderson. As this will be a treat for all, the Ballyhoo will remind our audience that Anderson's role on the show, while one that broke barriers of many kinds, still carries the painful tropes of African-Americans relegated to domestic servant roles a la butlers and chauffeurs, stereotypes that were wrong then and wrong today. Within that there will be a chance to hear many examples this evening of how Rochester would talk back to Jack, and thus examples can be heard of where progress creeped into the world of old-time radio in the most unexpected of ways. It is also worthy to note that this episode is the only one from our lineup to be written by the two Jack writers that were associated with him through most of his formative years in radio from the late 30s into the mid-40s, Bill Morrow and Ed Boulogne, to listen to their style of writing, which can weave in and out between stable reality and surrealist craziness, is a treat when going through their episodes. And tonight, you will hear some samples of that off-the-wall sense of humor that lent itself so well to radio. So here we go, from April 7th, 1940, it's time to be cued in by those five lovely letters.
0: (whistles) The Jello Program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. The orchestra opens the program with Ma, he's making eyes at me.
3: <laughs> Here, ladies
0: and gentlemen, are two of the most welcome sights in the world. A fat saucy robin hopping on the lawn, first happy sign of spring. And that perfect dessert for spring, a shimmering mold of rich, radiant Jello. Yes, Jell-O is a gay, tempting treat with brilliant flower-like colors that promise a true feast of flavor and keep that promise in a big way. It's simply full of grand, exciting goodness that makes friends quickly and keeps them long. And when you serve any one of jell six delicious flavors, you can be sure everybody will like it because Jell-O has a delightful, refreshing taste as inviting as the fresh, ripe fruit itself. So, folks, enjoy this rich, striking dessert just as often as you can. Help yourself to happy meals by always asking for Jell O. And when you buy, be sure to look for those big red letters on the box. They spell Jell O, and Jell O spells a perfect dessert. was, my, he's making eyes at me, played by the orchestra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, this is the beginning of spring. Tiny blades of grass are peeping through the soil. Blossoms are bursting into bloom. The harsh winds of winter have changed to soft, balmy breezes. So without further ado, we bring you a man who is still wearing his longies, Jack Benny.
2: Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking. And, Don, I don't mind your kidding about my age or my dramatic ability or my work in pictures or a lot of other things, but I think that my underwear is my own business.
8: <laughs>
2: is there nothing sacred around here? heaven. But, Jack, spring is here. Don't you think you ought to change into your shorts? Don, this is only the first week in April. When the butterflies come out of their cocoon, I'll come out of mine. LAUGHTER Until then, I'm taking no chances. Now, Jack, aren't you
0: being just a little overcautious? The winters are so mild out here.
2: He's right, Jackson. You're the only guy in Southern California that wears long underwear. Uh, What did you say, corn fuchsias? (laughs) What was that? I said you're the only guy in Southern California that wears long underwear. Oh, yeah? Did you ever see Tyrone Powers' backyard on a Monday morning? (laughs) Don't tell me those are Annabella.
8: <laughs>
2: and uh, another thing, Phil. Oh, hello, Mary.
7: Hello, Jack.
2: Another thing, Phil, that reminds me. I wish you'd stop running around telling everybody that I wear pajamas with feet in them. Well, you do, don't you? That was
0: one night when I forgot to take off my inner socks. <laughs> Just one. Inner socks? My goodness, Jack, what's the idea of wearing two pair of socks?
7: He bought some big shoes cheap. <laughs> now, wait
2: a minute, fellas. Wait a minute. Don started out with a beautiful poetic introduction about blades of grass and blossoms on the trees and balmy breezes. So let's stay in the mood.
7: You're right, Jack. Spring is beautiful. I'll say it is. You know, I was out in my yard this morning and I saw the cutest little robin. Yes? Gee, he was sweet.
2: Oh, I love robins.
7: And he just got in from the south. How do you know? He wasn't unpacked yet.
2: Now, cut it out! <laughs> Heavens to Betsy, you have to make a gag out of everything. Isn't there there any romance in this crowd at all? I was up all night, if that's what you mean. (laughs) I don't mean that. I'm talking about spring, birds, nature, flowers. Gee, doesn't a buttercup mean anything to you, Phil? Yeah, but don't let it get around. (laughs) I won't. But no kidding, fellas. This is the season of the year when we should have joy in our hearts. We should be happy and gay. I'm happy, Mr. Benny. I know you are, Dennis. You're always happy.
7: <laughs> what a mallet his head would make.
2: <laughs> Mary, believe me, it's a real pleasure to have one person around here that's contented and glad he's working for me. That kid's gonna get a raise.
7: What are you gonna do, let him stand on a box?
2: <laughs> no, I'm not gonna let him stand on a box. <laughs> I'm gonna give Dennis an increase in salary. I've heard that too, Dennis. Don't go out and buy a car. <laughs> Now just a second, Phil I don't know what you're complaining about Remember that day you came to me Looking for a job four years ago? Mr. Benny, you said You called me Mr. Benny, then. <laughs> Mr. Benny, you said Please put me to work on your program My beer garden job is all right But I want to improve
8: <laughs>
2: I want to get somewhere Remember that, Phil? Yes, but And my... I said to you Cheer up, young man I'll take you under my wing. Well, Phil, I've kept my word, and you've been with me ever since. That's true, Jackson, but I still think that I'm not getting enough dough. Listen, Phil. Listen to me. Always be loyal and always be true to those who have toiled and struggled for you. It isn't the salary or money you get. It's the smile of a friend that counts. You can bet. (laughs)
8: <laughs>
2: For Benny's your pal, your buddy, your friend He won't let you down He'll stick to the end So if it's money you want, pal Speak up, that's all And I'll have a new orchestra beginning next fall
8: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Applause
8: <laughs>
2: Thank you Now, Mary, you're next. Have you any complaints to make, young lady?
7: No, Jack, it's wonderful working for you. It's heaven, it's paradise. Skies are all blue. Well. You're so sweet and charming, and you never irk. But in spite of all this, I think you're a... Now, Don. (laughs) Don.
2: Don, have you anything to complain about?
0: No, Jack, I'm happy here working for you. There's no other thing that I would rather do. I'm glad to be able to stand up and shout that jello so tempting it melts in your mouth. Is it easy to make, Don? Oh, tell us, pray do. Not only that, it's economical, too. Then what should I tell my dear cousin Mo, sir? Tell him to run to his neighborhood <laughs> grocer. Well, we dragged that in beautifully.
2: <laughs> and now let us hear from our own Dennis Day. Have you got a song, something mellow or gay? Oh, yes, sir, I have, and it's really brand new. Well, go ahead, swing it. Come on, let it go or go. (laughs) Sing, Dennis. Doesn't spring make you silly, folks?
8: (laughs)
6: My kind of country Round that last bend We're heading for Old a uh, Stay with me And tonight We'll see My kind of country Once more There lives my kind of people Where that sun Smiles bright and red Old time arrives dry gold When these eyes behold My kind of country ahead Travel home Nine more miles Maybe ten May I ever Grieve If I ever Leave My kind of Country again Travel home Travel home Maybe nine more miles Hey!
2: good. That was My Kind of Country, written by Frank Lesser and Jimmy McHugh for that forthcoming Paramount picture, Buck Benny Rides Again. Starring Phil Harrison, thanks for the plug. (laughs) Now, wait a minute, Phil. Let's straighten this out right now. You're not the star of Buck Benny Rides Again. I stand out in it, don't I? Phil, you stand out in that picture about as much as an oyster in Chesapeake Bay. (laughs) In other words, son... You could be left out entirely and not affect the plot, the length, the suspense, the write-ups, the audience, and you take it from there. (laughs) A fine star. By the way, Jack, when will the picture be finished? Oh, we're through with it, Don. In fact, I have a little surprise for you. Uh, Buck Benny is going to have his world premiere in New York in a couple of weeks, and we're all going.
8: Oh, Oh, New York! York. Yes,
2: sir. When are we leaving, Jack? Uh, Right after next Sunday's show, we're going to do two broadcasts there. Wait till the big city gets a load of me and my 10-gallon hat.
0: Well, Jack, that's the kind of a he-man part you've always wanted to play. So you finally made it, huh?
2: Yes, and I don't want to brag or anything, Don, but I think I make a pretty good cowboy.
8: <laughs> oh,
7: Jack, what? tell him about the trouble you had with your horse.
2: Oh, you mean Abdul? Yeah. What a ham that animal was. He tried to steal every scene from me. Why didn't
0: you turn him around so he wouldn't face the camera?
7: He did, and the horse still had more personality than Jack.
2: (laughs) He did not. But you should have seen that horse, Don. He was always looking right in the camera and flashing those teeth of his. What an animal. Well, why didn't you do the same thing? Because in the first place, Phil, my teeth aren't as big as a horse's.
7: You could have ordered them any size you wanted. (laughs)
2: That's so. Well, you're just making things up, Mary. Because if I have false teeth, how is it I can crack nuts with them?
7: You take them out and hammer.
2: All right, Mary, all right. You can get on more subjects. We were talking about Buck Benny Rides Again. That's a swell title for a picture, Mr. Benny. How'd you happen to think of it? Well, you see, uh, we used to do a series of... Dennis, didn't you ever listen to this program before you came to work on it? Didn't you? There goes my (laughs) raise. Well, anyway, and you're right,
8: Dennis.
2: (laughs) Anyway, we used to do those Western plays, and we called them Buck Benny Rides Again. Oh, boy, they were fun. I used to be Sheriff Buck Benny. A rootin', tootin', shootin', hootin', galootin', fig (laughs) newton.
0: That was me. And I used to be your deputy, remember? Yes, sir.
7: And I was Daisy Carson, your sweetheart. Remember how you'd always ride over to my house and visit me? Yeah. And we'd sit in the parlor and hold hands? Uh-huh. And then you'd put the lights out? Uh-huh. And then you'd show your home movies?
2: <laughs> oh, boy, was I romantic. And then there was your pappy, Frank Carson, the town cutup. That was me, folks. Where's my job, Daisy? <laughs> and didn't we have an awful time trying to catch Cactus Face Elmer, the villain? You know, fellas, I've got a great idea. Let's put on a Buck Benny tonight and show Dennis how we used to do them. Would you like to hear another one, folks? Well, I'm glad to hear that the horse opera is still popular. So immediately after the next number, ladies and gentlemen, we will bring you a brand new episode of Buck Benny Rides Again. Now, Dennis... Yes, please? uh, You can be one of my deputies and work with Don. You're sort of a dumb type.
6: Well, gee, I don't know if I can handle
2: it.
8: <laughs> Dennis,
2: believe me, you'll come through. All right, Phil, uh, let's have a number, and then we'll go into our sketch. Okay, Jackson, do you want us to play loud or soft? There's no choice, and you know it. <laughs> so just blast away. Hold it a minute. Hello? Hello, Mr. Benny, this is Rochester. Rochester, I begged and pleaded with you not to call me in the middle of a broadcast. Now, what do you want?
3: Well, boss, I was just listening to the program and I heard you say you were going to New York a week from tonight. That's right. Do your plans embrace your ambassador to Harlem?
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes, Rochester, you're coming along. But we're going to be awfully busy in New York, so I don't know if you'll have time to go to Harlem. Let's get to New York and worry from there. <laughs> all right, all right. Now, as long as you know we're going, you might as well start making preparations. Uh, first of all, tell Mr. Billingsley, our boarder, that we're going to be gone a couple of weeks so he'll have to make his own coffee in the morning.
3: Okay. By the way, what are we going to do with that polar bear in hospice? Carmichael and Trudy? I don't know. Maybe we can get him a week at the Orvium. <laughs>
2: I doubt it. Carmichael hasn't rehearsed on his bicycle in a month, and he's all butterfingers with those Indian clubs. They'd never get booked.
3: I don't know about that. Trudy doesn't mean striptease.
2: Striptease?
3: Yeah, she pulls the plumes out one by one.
2: I know, but what have you got after the first show?
8: <laughs>
2: Besides, they work. They work much better with me. Now, Rochester, go down in the basement and bring up my big trunk and start packing.
3: That old thing? I don't think it'll stand another trip, boss.
2: Oh, it'll do. I only bought it four years ago and was practically new then.
3: That auctioneer must have lied to you. I don't want to hear
2: another word about it, Rochester. That trunk isn't so old.
3: It's got a bustle compartment. That's for shoes.
2: (laughs) Now, hang up, Rochester. I got a program to do.
3: Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, say, boss. What? Did you see our new picture yet?
2: Yes, they ran Buck Benny for me at the studio last night.
3: How am I in it? Very good, Rochester. You're swell. You're a big hit. I think I'll treat you to a new trunk, boy. Go on. Wait a minute. (laughs) Rochester.
2: Me hung up. Oh, well, if he wants to, he wants to. Bless his little heart. Play, Phil. Hear Bluebirds, played by Phil Harrison his orchestra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the 24th episode in our western melodrama entitled Buck Benny Rides Again, or Strange Cargo. <laughs> the opening scene is the office of Sheriff Buck Benny in the thriving little cow town of East Moo, Texas. Curtain. Moozy. <laughs> <laughs> Da-da-dum-bum-dee. boom Hello, Sheriff's Office, Bug Benny speaking. Oh hello, Red. What? Did I hear about Did I? Oh, did I hear about Dead Eye? Plug, eh? What did uh, well, did Dead Eye die die? I mean, is he dead, Red? <laughs> oh, is dad. Dead Eye's dads dead. Red. How'd he happen to get shot? Oh, he thought he found a horse. Well, thanks, Red. Goodbye. What's up, Sheriff? Dead-eyes dies dead. <laughs> I mean, dead-eyes dead, sad. I mean, dead-eyes father just stole his last horse. Too bad.
0: Good riddance, Saul. Now if we could just get rid of Frank Carson, this town would be fit to live in. Now hold on there, Deputy. That lowdown, down
2: no-good skunk, is my gal's
0: father. Besides,
2: he's reformed. Reformed? Why, last night he slept in the gutter in front of the East Move Biltmore. Well, that's the best hotel in town, ain't it? I remember when Frank used to sleep in front of the firehouse. They had to take the hook and ladder out the back door. (laughs) Where's Deputy Day? Oh, Day? Yes, please. (laughs) Not too low, Deputy. You're liable to stay there. Now, look here, Dave, I want you to go out and catch some crooks. We ain't got a single prisoner in this jail. With these beds, no wonder. Never mind that and hang out the vacancy sign. That always helps. And remember, Dave, the next time you go out... Hmm. Did you hear that shooting, Buck? Yep, that's either five aces or her husband came home.
6: <laughs>
0: but that's life again. Say, hey, uh, Sheriff, I hate to keep harping on this, but... When are we going to catch Cactus Face Almer? We've been looking for him for three years. I don't know, Wilson. That vomit is harder to find than art in the
2: Mighty Allen art (laughs) player. But I'll get him one of these days. Well, see you later, deputies. Where are you going, Sheriff? Next door to Dead Eye's Barbershop and get a haircut. Then I'm going over
0: and propose to Daisy Carson. Why, you've been proposing to her for over ten years. When's she gonna say yes?
2: I don't know, but if she don't say it soon, it won't be worth it. <laughs> so long, deputies. Hello, did I? Howdy, Sheriff. Did you hear about your father getting shot a few minutes ago?
3: No, was it fatal? Yep. Too bad. What'll it be, haircut or shave? <laughs>
2: Haircut. Put the bowl on and let's get going. Hello, Goldie. Give me one of them manicures, will you?
7: Okay, Sheriff. Slip me your paw. There
2: you are. Watch out for my ears, did I? I declare, Goldie, you're getting prettier every day. I am? Yep, but you've got a long way to go.
3: A mighty long way. How was that, did I? (laughs) That's a good one. Say, Buck, at the time they plugged my old man... Was he stealing a horse?
2: Yes, he was, did I?
3: Bad habit. Sure you don't want to shave now? (laughs) No, not today. Uh, There's a long hair growing out of your ear, Sheriff. Should I pull it out? Sure, go ahead. Now hold steady.
2: I'm a-holdin'.
3: Here we go.
6: Yikes!
2: That got it. (laughs) Well, I guess I'll run over to Daisy's now. What do I owe you for that manicure, Goldie?
9: Fifteen cents, and that's final.
2: Fifteen cents for all the other boys, only pay a dime. What's the extra nickel for?
9: You're the only guy in town with ten fingers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's right. There is a lot of shooting going on here. Well, so long, Deadeye. I'm going over and see Daisy. So long.
6: Come on. Giddy up there. Well,
2: here's the Carson house now. Whoa, partner. Whoa. Steady, partner. (laughs) Steady now, and here's an oak to chew while I'm gone. Hope Daisy likes my haircut. Come in. Hello, Daisy.
7: Hello, tall, dark, and bow legged.
2: Well, gal, you don't exactly have to detour when you come to a fire hydrant yourself. Just came from the barbershop, Daisy. What do you think of my haircut?
7: I can't tell with that beanie you're wearing.
2: That's the haircut. Oh. (laughs) Well, Daisy, I suppose you know what I came here for. I've been a court in you now for over ten years. You meant everything to me, and you still do. Now, what do you say, gal? Will you marry me? Yes. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) No use rushing into this like a couple of school kids.
7: Buck, I was only kidding. I told you before, I can't never marry you as long as Pappy is alive. I gotta stay home and take care of him.
2: Well, don't you care for me?
7: Yes, but I care more for him. <laughs>
2: mm, same old story. Where's your Pappy now?
7: Upstairs. He filled the bathtub full of dry martinis and he's diving for olives.
2: Doggone him! You know Daisy, if your old man don't give up drinking, he's gonna start seeing things.
7: Start seeing things. Runs all over the house now trying to trap him.
2: No fooling.
7: Why, Buck, you know that big empty closet we got upstairs in the attic with nothing hanging on the walls? Yes. That's his trophy room. Mm.
2: <laughs> well, I think I better have a talk with Frank and see if I can straighten him out.
6: Well, hello, Buck, have an olive. (laughs) Thanks. Come on, Buck, I think we better go downstairs and join Daisy. You're downstairs
3: now? (laughs) Then I'm going to take them steps out, I don't need them. (laughs)
2: Well, Frank Carson, I'm disgusted with you. Look at him, Daisy, look at him standing there with a jug in each hand.
7: If I take one away, he'll fall over.
2: (laughs) I'll say he will. Now, you go back upstairs, Frank. Get some sleep. It'll do you good. Okay. Come on, boys.
8: Boys?
2: (laughs) I don't see anyone.
7: That's his elephants. He's got a herd of them.
2: Well, Daisy, now that we're alone again, how about a kiss? Come on. Pucker up, gal.
6: Open up. Open up the door, Sheriff. Yeah, open up.
2: Unpucker, Daisy. We got company.
0: Come
6: in. What's the trouble, boys? Sheriff, we got bad news for you. Captain Face Elmer's back in town. He's just robbed the First National Bank. He did? Yep, he got $8,000 in my gun. <laughs> well, what are we waiting for? Let's go after him. we would never find him,
2: Sheriff. We don't know where his hideout is. That's right. That vomit always gets away.
7: You better do something, Buck. If you don't find Captain Face this time, it'll cost you your job.
2: I know it will. Doggone, I wish I could find him. I wish I knew where his hideout was. Can't anyone help me? No! <laughs>
8: you kid. <laughs>
2: what?
7: I am the Blue Fairy.
2: That was last week. This ain't Pinocchio. What are you doing back here?
7: I didn't get paid yet. Oh.
2: <laughs> well, wait a minute. Maybe you can help me. Do you know where Cactus Face Elmer is hiding?
7: Yes. Where? You will find Cactus Face Elmer at
2: This, ladies and gentlemen, will not be continued next week. If you want to know the ending of this little play, eat a Welsh rarebit, a dish of chocolate ice cream, four dill pickles, doze off, and go to town. Play, Phil.
0: Here's a real prize winner of a recipe that's sure to prove a real praise winner every time you serve it. It's Jello Swell New Dessert, Cherry Pie Glaze, a rich, colorful combination of bright red cherry jello and ripe, juicy cherries with a gay, beguiling flavor that will make everybody pass their plates for more. All you have to do is just make up a package of cherry jello and fold in two and one half cups of canned red cherries, which have been drained and sweetened. Then after you've poured it into a cold baked pie shell and let it chill until firm, serve it up plain or with whipped cream. And take it from me, you'll have a grand treat that will win smiles and cheers from the whole family. So plan to have this tempting dessert for tomorrow night's dinner. Cherry Pie Glaze, a striking blend of delicious red cherries and rich crimson cherry jello.
2: The last number of the 27th program in the current Jello series. And we will be with you again next Sunday night at the same time. And Dennis, that's the way we used to do Buck Benny. Did you
6: like it? Yes, but I'd like to know where Cactus Face is.
2: You're the only one that cares. Good night, folks.
6: <laughs>
8: J-E-L-L-O
0: And here's more fun and enjoyment for you. Tune in every Tuesday night for another swell half hour of Jell-O entertainment with the famous Aldrich family. See your local paper or movie and radio guide for time and station. This is the National Broadcasting Company.
5: Well, that was quite a listen again. I particularly love that poem by Jack at the top of the show. And it never fails to get me after he ends it by saying, "Applause." Uh, and as you'll notice in the Rochester segment, how it ended with Rochester asking about how his performance in the picture was received and Jack's response would be but the start of that praise, because as we discussed with Brandon Rose, the premiere of Buck Benny at Lowe's Victoria Theater in Harlem would be a celebratory night for Eddie Anderson as he was honored at the extravaganza with a testimonial that followed at the Savoy Ballroom that included such a Luminaries in attendance as Ella Fitzgerald, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Louis Armstrong, and Ethel Waters. And I can only imagine that it was a night that meant much to him as much as it means to us to hear that kind of story. Now as we move along to the second part of our Ballyhoo tie-in, we find ourselves thrust forward seven years. Jack has left the gelatin business behind and has fallen in the arms of the American Tobacco Company plugging Lucky Strike cigarettes. And the team of Morrow and Boulogne had been succeeded by the legendary four writers that would stay with Jack the Longest, John Tackaberry, Sam Perrin, Milt Josephsberg, and George Balzer. This core team would take what writers like Harry Kahn, Boulogne, and Morrow established and refine it into the many legendary tropes and moments we associate with Jack. One of those was, as we're about to hear, getting lost in a thrilling book. Of all the moments in the Benny program where his reading a book in the library would whisk him off to a fantasy that served as parody and satire of whatever genre was at play, the one that had the biggest legs was the show's take on noir with I Stand Condemned by Maximilian Q. Langley. The sketch where a man is about to go to the electric chair recounting his run-in with a counterfeiter that brought him to this dismal end was already done previously on the show. On that version before you would hear the unforgettable voice of Peter Lorre as the counterfeiter. And we may play that someday. But on today's show, you will be treated to the lovely tones of one William Henry Pratt. Oh, oh, that name's not familiar, is it? Um, well, what if I said Boris Karloff? That's right. Mr. Karloff will grace the Betty program in this particular story. So you, the audience, will get to hear a bit of Boris's comic side to contrast the terror he exuded from our Ballyhoo discussions of the past with The Black Cat and Isle of the Dead. And by the end of the episode, you will hear another neat connection to our most recent Karloff discussion. It should also be pointed out on this show that Jack had since had to do away with the sillier commercials that made fun of the sponsor's product in a more forward manner. The president of the American Tobacco Company, George Washington Hill, was not as forgiving as General Foods, and frankly, didn't need to have sales of Jell-O boosted the way General Foods did. The compromise that ended up being reached was for one silly commercial in the middle with two straightforward ads at the beginning and end, where you would hear the famous L.S. M.F.T., L.S. M.F.T., and the tobacco auctioneer, who I'm not even going to try to imitate right here. And uh, by the 1946-1947 season, the show would decided to bring on an additional factor for the commercials, known as the Sportsman Quartet, who began the season by simply humming a single note as Don read the commercials. As the season went on, the Sportsman would do ridiculous parodies of established songs to plug Luckies that drove the Jack character nuts. And while you will not hear the Sportsmen themselves tonight, you will hear Jack's impeccable ability to time out the moments he is silent and when he is reacting a lovely sample of his artistry, uh, all taking place around a phone call with the Sportsman Quartet. So, from January 19th, 1947, let's get lost in a book as we whisk ourselves away to... The Jack Benny Program.
2: For your own real deep-down smoking enjoyment, remember... LSMFT. Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. And fine tobacco is what counts in a cigarette. Year after year, at auction after auction, independent tobacco experts, auctioneers, buyers and warehousemen can see the makers of Lucky Strike consistently select and buy that fine, that light. That naturally mild tobacco, fine white,
4: naturally mild tobacco. Yes, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. And in a
11: cigarette, it's the tobacco that counts. So for your own real deep down smoking enjoyment, smoke that smoke of fine tobacco, Lucky Strike. So round, so firm, so fully packed,
12: so free and easy on the draw. American.
0: Program starring Jack Benny with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, let's go out to Jack Benny's house in Beverly Hills where we find Jack and Phil Harris alone in the library. Well, Jackson, you asked
2: me to come out to your house and see you alone. What's all the mystery? Uh, wait a minute, Phil. I... I want to lock the door. Uh... Okay, Jackson, what is it? Uh, just a second, Phil. I want to shut the window. All right, all right. You locked the door, closed the window, and drew the blinds. Now, what do you want? Phil... Something's got to be done about your orchestra. I don't know what, kid, but something. Are you kidding? No, Phil. Look, I'll admit, when we're doing radio shows, I joke about your music. But now we're in my home. Just the two of us. Believe me, I'm serious. Something has got to be done, or else. Now, wait a minute, Jackson. Don't go getting tough with me if you got any beef talk to Petrillo. I've already talked to Petrillo, and he's on my side. (laughs) Believe me. On your side? How do you like that? You miss your dues one week, and the mother hen starts kicking you out of the nest. (laughs) Look, Phil. After 10 years, I don't mind your band. I'm used to it. But listen to these letters I've been getting. Listen to this one. Dear Mr. Benny, I am a poultry farmer, I read in a magazine that music helps the hens lay more eggs. So I put a radio in the hen house. Two weeks ago, I tuned in your program. The hens heard Phil Harris's orchestra. Now they are laying more eggs than ever, but the yolks are green. There you are, Phil. What do you think of that? Green yolks? The guy's got something there. You can use them in my penis. Please, maestro. Look, here's another one. <laughs> now, get this other letter. Dear Mr. Benny, I am a professor of English and literature at Harvard, and for years and years, I have consistently listened to your Sunday presentations. I have found your construction and continuity compact and concise, your dialogue singularly free of cliches and ponderosities.
8: <laughs>
2: but Mr. Harris's musical ensemble stinks. <laughs> Phil, this proves he's a high-class professor. He spells stinks with a Y. (laughs) Now, those two letters are just samples of the mail that comes in. Every week, I get thousands and thousands and thousands of letters like those. Well, if I'm getting all that mail, I want more dough. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Look, Phil, what I'm trying to tell you is that you better do something about your orchestra. What are you talking about? I got one of the greatest musical aggravations in the country. (laughs) That's aggregation, but for once, you're right. (laughs) Of course I'm right. You take my boys. They've all got great backgrounds in the music business. Oh, fine. Sure, take Frankie, my guitar player. For seven years, he played first washboard for Spike Jones. (laughs) Well, he's not playing the washboard now, so tell him to stop strumming his guitar with that box of (laughs) dust. If he's that close to soap, why doesn't he get some of it on him? And Charlie, your piano...
11: Now, wait a minute.
2: Don't be talking about Charlie, my piano player. He held a job with Guy Lombardo's orchestra for 12 years. 12 years with Guy Lombardo? Yeah, and he wasn't even a brother. (laughs) Phil, that has nothing to do with it. And believe me, Phil, I'm not picking on you. I'm just trying to arrive at an understanding. Now, Phil, I know you're sensitive. So I'm... (laughs) So I'm talking to you not as an employer, but as your friend. Now, let's try to... Phil, stop chewing on that ham hock and listen to me. Please. I'm sorry, Jackson. I just happened to have one in my pocket. <laughs> All right, but, Phil, I hope we understand each other now. Okay, Jackson. Look, I got to run along. Do you mind if I go? No, no, go ahead. Phil, I said you can go. What are you waiting for?
3: Well,
11: open the door, Richard.
8: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So long, Jackson. Phil.
2: Oh, hiya, Livy.
8: Well,
2: well, well. Hello, Mary. Mary, come on in the library. I want to hear all about your trip. Where'd you go?
8: Well, Jack,
7: I thought you knew. I went back east to attend my mother and father's wedding anniversary.
2: Really? And how were the Duke and Duchess of (laughs) (laughs) Plainfield?
7: Oh, swellie, you know, Jack, they have the cutest way of keeping track of their anniversaries. Each year on their wedding day, Papa snips off a lock of Mama's hair and puts it away.
2: Well, that's awfully sweet. How long have they been married?
7: <laughs> I don't know. For the last three years, they've been calling Mama Baldy.
8: <laughs> hmm.
7: And, Jack, you should have seen my sister, Babe. She looks beautiful. She wore a strapless evening gown and was really glamorous.
8: You know, Mary,
2: those strapless gowns fascinate me. How do they keep them up?
7: I don't know about the other girl, but Babe uses fish hooks. <laughs> fish hooks? When Babe's out to catch a guy, she ain't kidding. Well, how'd she do? Oh, she's got a nice boyfriend now. He's a credit dentist.
2: Oh, you mean one of those dentists who let their patients put them on the installment plan?
7: Yeah, one of his slogans is don't sit around and gum your hash just because you're short of cash. <laughs> That's
2: one of his slogans? You mean he has others?
7: Yeah, his best one is don't keep your lips closed in sorrow, smile today and pay tomorrow. Well,
2: he certainly sounds like the right guy for Babe.
7: Yes, and he's very successful, too. He's the one who invented that new lower plate. It bites underwater. <laughs>
2: Oh, yes, it's got those new ballpoint teeth. By the way, Mary, would you like to have dinner with me?
7: Oh, I can't, Jack. Dennis is coming by to pick me up in a few minutes. He's taking me to a movie.
2: Oh. How come you're going out with Dennis tonight?
7: Well, he called me up in Plainfield for the date.
2: Dennis? phoned you in Plainfield? Long distance?
7: Yes, long distance.
2: Well, of course he has two shows.
7: (laughs) You know...
13: (laughs) You
2: know, Mary, I...
7: Hello,
2: Mr. Benny, Mary... Oh, hello, kid. We were just talking about you. I'm
7: ready to go, Dennis.
13: Say, Mr. Benny, ask me what picture we're going to see. What? I say, ask me what picture we're going to see.
2: All right. Well, what picture are you going to see?
13: It's the one about a couple of deers.
2: A couple of deers? The yearling?
13: No, the Dolly sisters. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> you sure stepped into that one. Dennis. For a big-time comedian, you ain't got that oxy sparkle.
8: <laughs> then
2: stop with the jokes, will Come you? Come
7: on, Dennis. Let's go.
2: Wait a minute, kid. Hello? Oh, hello, Don. What? You've been rehearsing the commercial for next week? Don, what's so difficult about the commercial that you have to rehearse it? All you have to say is, L-S-M-F-T, L-S-M-F-T. Lucky strike means fine tobacco. Yes, lucky strike means fine tobacco. That's all you need. The quartet? No, no, Don, I'm not going to use them anymore. I don't care if they are in your room rehearsing. We're not going to... Well... Well, all right, I'll listen to them. But I'm warning you, this is their last chance. Okay, put them on. Hello, fellas. Now cut that out! (laughs) Just sing your commercial. Go ahead. Hmm, it's not bad at all. L-S-M-F-T, I I love you. Da da dee da da de, de. Say, that sounds beautiful. Da da dee da de, de, de. Fellas, hold it, hold it. You started out so beautifully. Look, fellas, that isn't what I want. Wait a minute, put down back on. That's not what I. Hold it a minute, fellas. Put down back, fellas, fellas. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.
8: Wait
2: a minute! That won't do, fellas. And tell Don I'll talk to him when I see him. Goodbye. They drive me nuts. I'm gonna. Oh, there's the phone again. I wonder who it is this time. Hello? Yes, this is Jack Benny. What? Well, well, I suppose I could, but. If... Of course, I'll have to make some arrangements about my picture and radio commitment. Yes, I certainly will think it over. And it was nice of you to consider me. Thanks. Thanks very much. Goodbye.
8: What was that, Jack?
2: They want me to be governor of Georgia. (laughs) Well, go ahead, kids. You can run along now.
8: All right.
2: So long, Jack. So long. Goodbye, Governor. Goodbye, you all.
8: Enjoy
2: yourselves. Hmm, da da dee dum dee da dum dum, sweet Georgia Brown, da da. Or Rochester? Right,
11: yes, boss.
2: What do we got for dinner?
11: One used ham hock. <laughs> One used ham hock. And turnip greens he had a hole in his other pocket. <laughs> well, wipe the
2: lint off of it. I'm hungry. <laughs> a good dinner, Rochester. Now I think I'll go in the library and get a book. Oh, here's one on the table.
11: But you finished it, boss. I did? Yeah, you called all the pictures in that one. Oh,
2: yes. Maybe I'll just read one for a change. I'll be in the library, Rochester. Gee, I don't know what to read. Here's a good book. The Great Balsamo by Maurice Zolotow. Here's another one. Life in the Swiss Alps by Sam Oleole. (laughs) Here's another one. The Rover Boys on Mulholland Drive. (laughs) Say, they're growing up. Here's one. I Stand Condemned by Maximilian Q. Langley. I Stand Condemned. I think I read that about a year ago. Gee, it was pretty good. Exciting, too. I might as well read it again before I take it back to the library. (laughs) Chapter One. I Stand Condemned. I'm what you call an average citizen. I come from a little town in the Midwest. Yes, I'm married. I have a lovely wife. And we have three fine boys and a dog. George, Frank, Harry, and
8: Fido. Harry is the dog.
11: (laughs) My life
2: as the lives of most men followed a course pointed out by the fickle finger of fate. Most stories start at the beginning. But my story begins at the end. I am occupying a cell in the death row at the state penitentiary.
7: I'm innocent. I'm innocent, I tell you. Let me out of here. Oh, Warden. Warden. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Warden, you got to let me out of here. I'm innocent, do you hear? Innocent. And in a few minutes... They're going to execute me. What time do I go to the chair? 5.30. Good. Then I won't have to listen to Fred Allen.
8: <laughs>
2: no. no, what am I saying? Wharton, Wharton, I tell you, it wasn't my fault. I don't want to go to the electric chair. Now, now, calm down. Our barber's a little rushed today, so I'll shave your head myself. But Wharton... Sit still. I'll start with the scissors. Take it easy around the sideburns,
9: please. Yes, sir. Manicure?
2: No, no, thank you.
9: Wait, a minute! wait, now let me out of here. I don't want to go to the
2: electric chair. I won't leave this room. I can't walk that last mile. Oh, you won't have
11: to. We'll bring the electric chair in here.
8: <laughs>
11: what? We have a long cord, you know. But, Warden,
2: Warden, can't you hang me? I'm afraid of the chair. How will they know when I'm dead?
11: If we have one of those new electric chairs. You pop up when you're done.
8: <laughs> but,
11: but, Warden.
2: Warden, I'm innocent. If you'll only listen to my story, I know you'll believe me. Oh, very well. What is your story? Well, Warden, it goes back a long, long time. I would have led a normal life... except for the fickle finger of fate. The warden listened to my story. I told him how I met the man who was responsible for my undoing. I had just left my office... and was going home to my three wonderful children... Manny, Moe, and Jack.
8: <laughs> we had Manny and Jack... And felt that we should have one mo. <laughs>
2: anyway, I was walking down the street when suddenly a figure stepped out of the shadows. He was a tall man with a sort of a square face. He reminded me somewhat of Boris Karloff. But his voice was so pleasant when he tapped me on the shoulder and said...
10: Pardon me, please, but may I trouble you for a match?
11: A
2: match? Uh, I'm sorry I don't have one, but I'll, I'll let you use my cigarette lighter. Thank you. You're very kind.
11: Hey, you! Come back with that lighter!
2: Give me that! All right, all right. Here's your lighter. But why were you running away? I thought you just wanted to light a cigarette. I do, but my cigarette is home. (laughs) Well, you have no right... Wait a minute. You look so much like Boris Karloff. Thanks. You're looking well yourself. (laughs) Thank you. However, my resemblance to Mr. Karloff is
4: purely physical. For instance, I would never think of going to a cemetery in the black of night, opening graves and stealing the gold teeth out
2: of dead bodies. Huh? That's... That's dishonest, you know. Yes. Yeah. Well, wait, well, wait a minute. You were trying to steal my cigarette lighter, weren't you? No, I wasn't. As a matter of fact, I'd like to buy it. I'll give you $20,000 for it. Well, I... I don't want to take advantage of you. I'll tell you what. I'll throw in an extra flint. (laughs) Just as I said, you're very kind. Here is the money. A $20,000 bill. Gosh. Well, so long, mister.
5: I hope you enjoy the lighter.
2: Just a moment, please. I also admire your necktie.
8: My necktie!
2: I know it sounds fantastic, but he bought my tie for $17,000. And then he bought my shirt and my shoes and my suit. As I gave him my last stitch of clothing, this mysterious stranger handed me $194,000 and two balloons. (laughs)
8: Having no clothes
2: I blew up the balloons
8: And danced
2: my way home (laughs) The next day I met the same mysterious man For a second time Again he gave me fabulous prices For my clothes And again I danced my way home On the
8: third day The same thing happened
2: I was not only getting richer, but I was
8: dancing better. (laughs) Our daily
2: meetings were more than mere coincidence. A bond developed between us. Two weeks later, I was sitting in the kitchen having breakfast with my wife and my three lovely children Minsk, Pinsk, and Busher. The mysterious stranger had not yet come downstairs. Yes. He was living with us.
7: Come on, children. Finish your breakfast. That's right, children. Eat your food. But, Daddy, can't we have milk like we used to? I'm tired of champagne on my grape nuts.
2: (laughs) No, you can't have milk. It costs practically nothing. Where's Junior?
7: Oh, he's out in the backyard feeding $20 bills to the cows.
2: Feeding our money to the cows? That's ridiculous. No,
7: it isn't, Pa. We haven't any more bags to keep it in.
2: (laughs) Anyway, he's been out there long enough. I'll call him. Junior! Junior, get ready for school.
7: Oh, Daddy, I don't want to go to that new school.
2: I bought it and you'll go to it. (laughs) Now
7: get ready. You know, darling, things just haven't been the same since that stranger came to live with us. He frightens me. There's something eerie about him. I've been feeling the same... Quiet. Here he comes now.
2: Yes. As we were talking, he opened the door and walked into the room.
8: (laughs) (laughs) He was wearing sneakers. (laughs) As I rose from the table
4: he said. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Did you
11: sleep well? Yes, I did. Nah. (laughs) Sit down. Thank you. I'm sorry I'm late for breakfast,
2: but I overslept. I was out at a party last night. A party? Well, how do you feel this morning? Oh, well, have some tomato juice. Yes, I'll get
7: you some.
2: You know, I envy you, too. A beautiful home. Lovely children.
7: Haven't you any children?
2: No. I married a smudge pot. (laughs) You married a smudge pot?
7: Oh, then you haven't any children.
2: No. But we're lousy with oranges. (laughs)
7: Oh.
2: By the way, I don't feel I should live here any longer without paying you rent. How much do you want? Well, I... I'm no good at these things. Let's forget it. Oh, but I insist. Would a million dollars a week be enough? Well, with or without meals?
8: <laughs>
2: with meals. That'll be three dollars extra.
8: <laughs> I'll
2: be glad to
8: pay it. Glad?
2: Things like this were happening every day. I've got money, man.
8: Money, money, money.
2: My wife left me. And so did my three lovely children. Sarah, Toga, and Trunk.
8: <laughs> I didn't
2: care. I had my money.
11: I accumulated millions of dollars, which I kept in my shoes.
8: I was now 11 feet six. <laughs> I begged the OPA to raise the ceiling.
2: <laughs> One day, as I was sweeping some loose change under the rug...
11: He came
2: in. Hello, my friend. Look, I have a present for you. A brand new $10,000 bill. A $10,000 bill? Let me have it. Give it to me quick. i got to have it. All right, but be careful how you handle it. The ink is still wet.
8: <laughs> Don't worry,
2: I'll... The ink is still wet. <laughs> Wait a minute. You mean you've been printing this money yourself? Certainly. But doesn't everybody? Oh, so that's it. I must have been blind now to see through this whole scheme. My life is ruined. i lost my wife and my three lovely children. Chico, Pico, and Sepulveda.
11: <laughs> I thought I was rich, but I haven't got a tie or a shirt or a suit. All I got is money,
2: money, money. And all counterfeit. You even got my cigarette lighter. And I, like a fool, threw in an extra flip. Yes, you are a fool. Do you think I'd really pay you $17,000 for a necktie? $22,000 for your button shoes? Now, wait a minute. Yes, you are a fool. Do you think I'd give you $500 for a dinner? when I can get the
11: same thing at Ciro's for $400. Of course that money was counterfeit. Yeah,
2: those balloons you gave me weren't any good either. They broke on the Sunset bus and embarrassed me. So all this time? You've been nothing but a
11: counterfeit. Well, what's the difference? We can still do business. I can print the money and you can get rid of it for me. Never, never, never. I'll kill you first. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill you. Oh, get your hands off my throat. Take him away. Take him away. Don't kill me. I'll give you back your clothes. My clothes? What good are they now? You had the pants lengthened and the coat that I... Had. You even lost the string out of my pajamas. Jesus, please. Please stop choking me. Stop choking me. Oh, why must I always die in the end?
8: <laughs> there. 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 Ah. <laughs> yes. I killed
2: him. And as I finished telling my story, the warden looked at me and said,
11: It's 5.30, shall we go?
8: <laughs>
2: and so... As I walked through the little green door, I thought of my three lovely children. Singer, Hankle,
14: and Clyde.
8: <laughs> <laughs> I stand condemned! <laughs> now Jack will be back in just a minute. The first minute, my good friend, Mr. L.A. Legs.
11: No doubt about it. In a cigarette, it's the tobacco that counts. And year in, year
2: out, consistently, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Here's a tip from a man with
14: a lifetime of tobacco experience. Mr. James Monroe Ball of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. An independent tobacco auctioneer for the past 31 years. Mr. Ball said, I
2: speak as an eyewitness when I say that season after season, I've seen the makers of Lucky Strike by fine, ripe, mellow leaf. That good kind of tobacco that makes a swell smoke. I've smoked Lucky's myself for 29 years. Remember, at auction after auction, independent tobacco experts like
14: Mr. Ball can see the makers of Lucky Strike consistently select and buy that fine,
2: that light That naturally mild tobacco. Fine, light, naturally mild tobacco. Real Lucky Strike tobacco. Yes, LSMFT. Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. And this fine Lucky Strike tobacco means real deep-down smoking enjoyment for you. So smoke that smoke of fine tobacco, Lucky Strike. So round, so firm, so fully packed. So free and easy on the draw. (coughs) I want to thank Boris Karloff for appearing here tonight, and he can currently be seen in his latest RKO picture, Bedlam.
11: Well, say, Jack.
0: Yes, Don? I understand you're going to be on Kenny Baker's program in the morning.
2: Yes, I am, Don. Will you pick me up for rehearsal?
0: Yes, Jack. Rehearsal is at 7.30 a.m.
2: Oh. Well, don't bother. I'll go right over there from here. Good night,
8: folks. This is NBC, the national broadcasting
10: company.
5: Now, wasn't it lovely to hear a plug for Val Luton's bedlam at the end of this delightfully funny episode? I think so. I do also think it's rather funny to hear that Boris Karloff married a smudge pot, a device used in the California area to keep orange trees defrosted amidst cold environments. And was that Frank Nelson you heard tonight? Why, yes! Nelson's Yes Guy character that grew from Benny would become a staple of any show Nelson guested on after that, including Sanford and Son and The Lucy Show. Today, many may know it as the Yes Guy on The Simpsons, which started using the Frank Nelson homage in Season 10 with Homer the Bodyguard. In fact, on the commentary for that episode, you will hear Mark Hamill name drop Jack Benny before anybody else in the room does. So props to Luke Skywalker for knowing his comedy heritage. And before we move along, you may be wondering what that phone call Jack received about the governorship of Georgia was all about. Well, I will say that I myself was unsure about that for many years until I looked a little bit more into it. It seemed that during the gubernatorial elections for Georgia in 1946, the winner was declared to be none other than previous three-term governor Eugene Talmadge. Yet on December 21st, 1946, Talmadge died of hepatitis that was complicated by the effects of cirrhosis of the liver, thus leaving the governorship of Georgia in a rather puzzled state. Who would assume control now that Talmadge had passed on? Thus began a three-month period between January and March of 1947 where the governorship of Georgia was being fought for by outgoing Governor Ellis Arnall, Lieutenant Governor-elect Melvin E. Thompson, and Talmadge's own son, Herman Talmadge. By the end of the whole debacle... And after a drawn-out process that saw Talmadge Jr. being elected by the General Assembly until Thompson planted himself firmly in the state capitol with no intention of moving, the Supreme Court of Georgia finally ruled that the General Assembly had violated the state constitution by electing Talmadge Jr. The seat was relinquished by Talmadge to Thompson, who would remain until a special election in 1948 saw Talmadge Jr. sweeping into the governorship in place of Thompson, where he would stay on as governor for the remainder of that regular term, and a new full term by November of 1950. So in case you thought you wouldn't learn a little bit about U.S. government history, I guess, on a show about Jack Benny, you better start adjusting your old noggin to spin in my crazy direction. Um, I'm also sorry if that was boring as sin. Uh, Fret not, though, I'll bring you back to something a little more simple. The joy of music. Something that Jack adored, and one that gives two opportunities for us to show off Mr. Benny playing the fiddle. Not that he was any Yasha Heifetz, mind you, and certainly no Giselle McKenzie. Come to think of it, he wasn't even as good as that little boy in the grocery store he encountered in one of his television episodes. You know, now that I think of it, he wasn't that great at all that it was, he? Eh? But there is something to that, that whole notion that disproves it only being seen as a joke. By the late 1940s, his interest in his old instrument had proven to be a great calling in the oddest of ways. As Benny's violin playing was off due to a loss of finger dexterity, years of no practice, and what his daughter Joan gently described as unable to hear that he was off pitch, Jack nevertheless persisted in his love for the violin, and that persistence was something he had no issue in having a few laughs about. But of course, you cannot have him practicing by himself— Someone must be there to be a stooge of sorts for the Benny character's cheap, skate, vanglorious, and oftentimes aloof character to flourish. Even if Jack the Man was none of those things, the character was. And the only person who could play opposite that kind of character as this tormented and frustrated human being would be the one and only Mel Blanc. The Man of a Thousand Voices was many things to Benny, from put-upon department store clerk to Jack's parrot, Polly, the motor to Jack's Maxwell... And as we'll hear today, Professor LeBlanc. And along the way, you will get a trip to the vault, where you will hear those amazing sound effects mentioned earlier, along with the appearance of Ed the Guard, played by Joseph Kearns, a man so dutifully bound to the guarding of the downstairs vault that he wasn't sure to this day if the Civil War was even over or how many states in the Union there were at any given time. Oh, Ed, so loyal staying down there. We'll have to get him a Christmas card one of these years. And so with that, we whisk you off to December 5th, 1948 for a private lesson with Professor LeBlanc. Take it away, program.
14: The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. Smoke a lucky to feel your level best. Smoke a lucky to feel your level best. Your level best. That's how you'll feel when you light up a lucky... Because Lucky's fine tobacco picks you up when you're low, calms you down when you're tense. It's important to you as a smoker to know that fine tobacco can do this for you. And every smoker knows. L-S-M-F-T. L-S-M-F-T. Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Mild, ripe, light tobacco. Remember, more independent tobacco experts, auctioneers, buyers, and warehousemen smoke Lucky Strike regularly than the next two leading brands combined. It's good to know that fine tobacco picks you up when you're low, calms you down when you're tense, by putting you on the right level, the lucky level, to feel and do your level best. That's the lucky level. Smoke a lucky to feel your level best. Smoke a lucky to feel your level best. The next time you buy cigarettes, remember, Lucky's fine tobacco puts you on the right level, the lucky level, to feel your level best and do your level best. Smoke a lucky to feel your level best. Get on the lucky level where it's fun to be alive. Get a carton of luckies and get started today.
15: The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with
11: Barry Livingston,
15: Phil Harris, Rochester, Dan and yours truly, Don Wilson. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's go out to Jack Benny's home in Beverly Hills, where we find... Oh, there's something wrong. There's a crowd gathered on the corner near Jack's house. Stand aside, folks.
11: Here comes the ambulance. Stand back. Let the doctor through. Let the doctor through. Honestly, officer, it wasn't my fault. He jumped right in front of my truck. Jumped in front of your truck? He must be desperate.
10: Oh.
11: Uh, He's coming to, officer. I think
13: you can question him now. Mister? Mister... Why did you jump in front of the truck?
10: Today, I have to give Monsieur Benny a violin lesson. <laughs>
8: yeah,
13: he's all right, officer. The truck missed him completely, and he just didn't even scratch.
10: So perhaps I will have better luck next time. <laughs> all right, break it up, everybody. Break it up. Mr. Benny's house is right up the street. I know, officer. I know. <laughs>
2: Well, Professor LeBlanc, come right in.
10: Professor, you're five minutes late. Uh, What detained you? There was an accident on the corner. Another one? Oh, it's getting awful out there. You know, on Wiltshire Boulevard,
2: you can't step off the curb without getting hit. Well... (laughs)
11: Wilshire
10: Boulevard. Professor, why are you writing it down? Nothing, nothing. Oh, Commissioner Benny, let us commence with the lesson.
2: All right. Just a minute. I'll get my violin. Hmm.
10: That's funny. My violin isn't here. It's always been here. Yeah, I wonder if. Say, I'll bet. All right, Chester!
11: Yeah, boy! Where is my violin? I wish it was on a slow boat to China! Now stop that. Oh, here it is.
10: Come on, you can give me my lesson in the den, Professor. Say, Professor, I've been thinking. You charge me two dollars for giving me one lesson a week. How much would you charge to come over here twice a week? Eight thousand (laughs) dollars.
2: Oh well, here we are. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll I'll just tune up my violin and we can uh, we can get started. Just just a second there.
8: Yeah.
10: Today we will dispense with the exercises and start with the new piece I gave you last week. Oh yes, yes, I've been working hard on that one. You know. Good, good. Commence. All right. <clears throat> No, no, Monsieur Denis, you must slide off the string with your little finger. Da, da, da. No, right. Now, you try it. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> It was, uh, too high, huh? Yes, take your finger out of your nose. (laughs) Huh? Oh, oh, yes, yes. Now, please, Monsieur Benet, let us go back from the beginning. Hmm. Remember, this is a minuet. Think of crinoline, hoop skirts, powdered wigs When you were a boy. (laughs) Professor, that remark was entirely uncalled for, and I don't appreciate those personal insults. I am sorry, monsieur. You can deduct 15 cents from the lesson. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let us proceed, please. Yes, sir. The same thing over again? Oui.
11: That's mop and tail right in the middle of the floor. When Mr. Benny's through with those things, I wish he'd put them away.
9: Hello, Rochester.
11: Oh, hello, Miss Livingston. Come on
9: in. Is Mr. Benny here?
11: Yes, ma'am. He's in the den taking a violin lesson. It sounds like a cat giving up his ninth life.
9: Oh. <laughs> Rochester, we shouldn't tease Mr. Benny about his violin. He plays beautifully.
11: He does?
9: Yes, Mr. Benny has the toll quality of Isaac Stern, the bowing touch of Fritz Kreisler, and his fingers have the dexterity of a heifus.
11: Miss Livingston, do you really believe that?
9: No, but Mr. Benny is playing at the opening of a Turkish bath tomorrow, and that's how they're advertising him. <laughs>
11: a Turkish bath?
9: Yes, their slogan is, get rid of your fat while Benny passes the hat.
11: Oh, I see. Rochester, I'm
2: all through with my... Oh, hello, Mary? I've been taking my violin lessons.
9: Where's your teacher? Uh,
10: Professor LeBlanc. He's such an emotional fellow. He he jumped out of the window.
9: Jumped out of the window?
10: Yeah. I forgot to ask you for my money.
2: (laughs) Oh, well, come right in, Professor, and I'll... uh... Hey, wait a minute, Mary. Isn't that Don Wilson sitting out in the car? Yes, Don drove me over. Well, why doesn't he come in?
9: Well, after the way you argued with him at my Thanksgiving party, he won't talk to you.
10: Won't talk to me? And
9: I don't blame him. You owe him an apology, and I'm going to make him come in.
11: John! Oh, John, come on in! Well, okay, but I won't talk to Jack. <laughs> what a
2: stubborn guy. he won't talk to me, I won't talk to him. That's all i, it I to him, Come
9: on in, John.
2: Mary, you can tell Jack I came in for you, not for him.
9: Jack, Don says he came in for me, not for you.
2: Well, you can tell Don that just because I made a mistake last week, he doesn't have to pout over it.
9: Don, Jack says just because he made a mistake last week, you don't have to pout over it. Well,
15: you can tell Mr. Benny that if he knew more about history, he'd know the Pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock,
2: not Cape Cod.
9: Mr. Benny, John says that if you knew more about history, you'd know that the Pilgrim's Land Oh,
2: yeah? Well, you can tell Mr. Wilson that if he doesn't shut up, you'll punch him right in the nose.
8: Uh,
9: Mr. Wilson, Mr. Benny said that if you don't shut up, I'll punch you... What? Wait a minute, Jack. If you're so mad at him, why don't you punch him in the nose?
2: With fingers that have the dexterity of a high set? Are you crazy? you can tell Don... You can
9: tell him yourself. Tell Don, tell Jack, tell Jack, tell Don. I feel like a carrier pigeon that was caught in a badminton game. Hmm. Now, Jack, you admitted you were wrong for arguing with Don, and I think you owe him an apology.
2: Well, all right. Don, Doncy boy, I'm sorry. Well... Don, I'm really sorry, and I I beg your forgiveness.
15: Well, Jack, only a man of your generosity. Your sense of fair play is big enough to admit that he's made a mistake. I, I accept your apology. Well, thank you, Don. And now that you're here, did you bring the quartet along with you? Oh, no, Jack, I'm sorry. You see, I was so angry with you, I didn't let the boys prepare a commercial for this week's program.
2: Well, that's all right, Don. Gee, you're so clever. I mean, you can do a commercial all by yourself. But, Jack, just one voice? It wouldn't have any color. One voice? What are you talking Why, you're a man of many voices, many moods. I am? Why, certainly. You could do it, Don. Look at it, do it, let's say, uh, the commercial...
10: Well, well, do it first like Charles Boyer. Boyer? Sure, go ahead, Don, try it. Okay. Uh...
2: <laughs> that's it, that's it, Don.
15: Come with me to the Cavs bar. Your lips look so beautiful holding that Lucky Strike cigarette. (laughs)
8: Uh,
9: uh, How is that, Mary? He sounds like Boyer and looks like the Casbah.
2: (laughs) Mary, please.
9: Now, Don, after you give them Boyer,
2: you can switch right into Lionel Barrymore. Lionel Barrymore? Well, I can't do that. Sure you can, Don. (laughs) Try it. Okay. Lionel
11: Barrymore. Deadly. Gentlemen of the jury. <laughs> I have come here today to plead my case <laughs> for this package of lucky fries. <laughs> and you can see for yourself that they're made of that fine. And that that white, naturally mine. Lord again. Medical. Lord again. Oh, gentlemen
8: of
12: the jury.
11: Light up a lucky and see
12: for yourself. Lord again. Uh. <laughs> That. That's wonderful, Don. <laughs>
2: That's wonderful. And Don, <coughs> to show you how sorry I am that I argued with you last week, I want you to stay here and have dinner with me tonight.
11: Oh, okay, Jack. What are we going to have? I don't know. Rochester, what are we going to have for dinner? Turkey hash. Turkey hash? Thanksgiving is gone, but the memory lingers on. <laughs> Never mind that. Uh,
2: Rochester takes three steaks out of the freezer. Mary's going to say, too. And by the way, Rochester, were there any phone calls while I was taking my, my lesson? No, sir. Gee, that's funny. She's supposed to let me know if our date is okay for tomorrow. She? Who's she? I'm not telling, but she's really something special. And Mary, when I take her out tomorrow, I'm going to have my car washed and polished and everything.
9: Do you think she'll do it? <laughs>
10: Oh, stop. Michel Benny, I would like to go. Please pay me for the lesson.
2: Oh, yes. Yes, Professor. I- I'm sorry. I'll go get her. A- oh, that must be the girl
10: now. I mean the call I'm expecting. Hello?
11: Well, I know you love me, Jackson, but control the lover.
10: Control?
8: The- oh,
11: Oh, I'm sorry, Phil. I was expecting a call
2: from
10: a girl. I've got a date. Oh, no. No, 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 no Not you, Jackson, not you Phil, what's so surprising about my having a date?
11: I can give you plenty of reasons A. It costs money B. No gal will ride in that jalopy of yours C. You can't dance D. You're too old And, um, and, um Oh, so you ran out of reason No, I just don't know the rest of the alphabet
8: <laughs> That
2: I can believe
11: and just because I have a date with a
2: girl, Phil, you don't have to make such a big thing out of it. Well, I'm just surprised, Jackson. Why? You never have no dates till spring when your blood starts to circulate.
11: <laughs> look,
2: Phil, I don't want to tie up the phone. What did you call about?
11: Oh, look, I just wanted to let you know I'll be out of town for a few days. I'm going on a hunting trip up in the High Sierras. Oh, the High Sierras, eh? Are you
2: going to hunt bear? Well, we might have... <laughs>
11: Jackson. What? Uh, Ask me that again.
10: (laughs) I said, are you going to hunt bear? No, I'm going to be dressed to kill.
8: (laughs) Uh, Oh,
11: Jackson, sometimes I wish I was Alice so I could be married to me.
10: (laughs) (laughs) Look, uh, Golden Boy, look, when are you starting on a hunting trip? Right away, Jackson,
11: the dogs are in the car now, two retrievers. Oh, retrievers? Yeah, they sure are smart the way they're trained to bring things back. They're my favorite dogs. Retriever? I thought your favorite dog would be a St. Bernard. What's so wonderful about a St. Bernard? A great big dog like that carrying a lousy half-pint.
8: <laughs>
11: well, look, Phil, go on, have a good time, and call me when you get back. So long. So long. Good health to all uh, from a rector. All right.
12: Goodbye.
9: Goodbye. When is Bill going hunting, Dad?
10: Right away. Yeah, I bet he has a good time, too. Mr. Benny, please do not keep me waiting like you always do. Oh, yes.
11: Yes, Professor. Your money. I- I'll get it for you. Say, boy, this letter just came from England, and it looked very important. On the envelope, it says from Princess Elizabeth. Oh, my goodness. Princess Elizabeth?
10: Here, read
2: me letters. I mean, let me read it. I'm. Yeah, I'm so... You read it to me, Rochester, will you? Okay.
11: Yeah. It says, Dear Mr. Bailey, I want to thank you for your kind offer, but regret to inform you that we've already signed up for a diaper service. <laughs> hmm.
2: See, I cabled them the, my offer the day the little prince was born,
10: you know.
9: Jack. I knew you took in laundry, but when did you start a diaper service?
10: When I grew up and found I was stuck with two dozen of them. (laughs) uh, Rather than waste them, I... Mr. Benny. Oh, all right, Professor. I'll get you yours. (laughs) Hey, wait a minute, Professor. You have a baby. How would you like... I don't want diapers. I want money. (laughs) Oh. Well, wait here, Professor. I'll go and get it for you. I better answer the door. But, Monsieur... I'll be right back. Yeah.
12: <laughs> cheer, here for all Notre Dame. Hello, Dennis. Take up the echoes cheering her name. Hello, Dennis. Send the volley. Oh, hello. <laughs>
13: hello, Dennis. How come you still waving that football, pennant? Oh, I just got back from the USC-Notre Dame game. But, Dennis, that game was yesterday. I know, and after it was over, I went down to congratulate some of the USC players, and before I knew it, it was, I was on a bus headed for the campus with the team.
10: Well, that's silly. Why didn't you get off the bus?
13: Notre Dame couldn't get through their line. How could I?
9: <laughs> Did you enjoy the game, Dad?
13: Oh, it was wonderful. But I was so confused. What do you mean, confused? Well, I'm Irish, so I felt loyal to Notre Dame. And then again, I live in California, so I felt loyal to USC. Gee, that's right. Well, who'd you cheer for? Dewey. He feels awful. <laughs>
10: What?
9: I'll take him now, Jack. Don and I set the coin and I lost.
10: Well, that's sporting of you two.
9: Did you have good seats at the game, Dennis?
13: I sat on the 50-yard line. It was awful.
9: Why?
2: I got chalk all over my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take him now, Mary. Lucky Don won again. Dennis, why in the world would they let you sit on the playing field?
13: Well, years ago, Coach Jeff Carvat and my mother used to go together. Oh, were they sweethearts? No, they both played in the line at USC. Hmm. Heads.
15: Tell me, Dennis. Oh, you lost this time, huh, Yes, yes. Tell me, Dennis, uh, did your mother really play football? Yeah, she says
13: I was her only fumble. (laughs)
9: I'll take heads
8: again.
10: Tell me, Monsieur Denis.
8: <laughs>
10: I do not understand these things, but why would they let a woman play football?
13: Oh, they couldn't tell the difference. She had a crew haircut.
2: <laughs>
10: well, that doesn't. Look, Dennis, you came over here to let me hear the song you're going to do on the
2: program. Now, for heaven's sake, sing it.
13: Oh, you're just mad because my mother was all American.
12: I am not mad. I am. I want my money.
8: In I just
12: want to hear this song. Go ahead, Dennis. Will you let
10: I like that song, Dennis. It'll be fine on the program. Michel Benny. Oh yes, yes. Uh, oh, by the way, Professor Leblanc, in case you haven't ordered your Christmas card yet. I do not want Christmas cards. I do not want diatoms. I do not want my
12: fine shirt. I'm hungry. I want mommy. Oh.
11: Uh, hungry? Well. No
12: more turkey. Hush, mommy.
9: For heaven's sake, Jack, why don't you go down to your vault and get him his money?
8: All right, Mary.
2: Professor, uh, I'll go down to my vault and I'll get your money right now. You can wait right here for me. See, yeah, I mustn't forget to listen to Donna
4: Michi on the new Lucky Strike program tomorrow.
14: there. Hair of gold, eyes of
2: blue.
8: Oh,
10: it's you, Mr. Benny. Yes. Hello, Ed. Long time no see. Uh, how, uh, how are you feeling? Fine. Say, Mr. Benny, how are
2: things on the outside? Very, very exciting, Ed. Very exciting. We just had a presidential election and Harry Truman was elected.
10: He carried 34 states. Gee, 34 states. Who carried the other two?
2: <laughs> no, 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 Ed. We have 48 now. You see, we took in Arizona, you know, and uh, oh, what,
10: what's the matter, Ed? You left the door open. The light's killing me. Oh. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry.
2: Now let's see. I I just need a little money. Excuse me, Ed, while I work the combination on the safe. Shall I uh, throw my eyelids together? Uh, no, no, Ed, it, it isn't necessary, really. It's just turn around. That's all. Now let's see. the uh, The combination is right to forty-five,
10: left to sixty. Back to fifteen, then left to one ten. There. alarm sound a little weaker than, uh, <laughs> it sound a little weaker than usual? Uh, I'll tell
11: you in a minute, I'm counting the dead gophers. Oh. By the way, Mr. Benny, did you open your vault yesterday? No,
2: no, Ed, that was an earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's see, what do I owe the professor... Two dollars for the lesson. Less fifteen cents for insulting me. That's a dollar eighty five. There. Well, that takes care of that. So long, Ed. Goodbye,
10: mister Bunny. Drop me a postcard now and then. I will. (laughs) Yada dum da dum bum-beetle-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee- Nah, nah, nah. <coughs> well, here's your money, Professor.
12: Oh, thank you, Michel Benny. La 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 la
2: la la, 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 la. Gee, French people are so emotional. Well, come on, Don. Would you and Mary like a cocktail
15: before dinner? Oh, now, look, Jack, you don't have to go all this trouble just for me. I, You apologize, and that's all that was necessary. Well,
9: Don, if Jack wants to invite you to dinner, you ought to stay.
15: Certainly.
2: We'll have three big steaks. And all the trimming. Well, thanks, Jack. After all, Don, last week I had a big argument with you, and it was my fault. You were right, and I was too stubborn to admit it. And, as Rudyard Kipling once said, you have suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So I intend to make it up to you. Jack. I intend to make it up to you. Jack.
15: Huh? Kipling didn't say that. It was Shakespeare. No, no, Don. See, I was reading it just last night, and Kipling. Jack, I happen to be quite a student of Shakespeare, and I say you're wrong. Don.
12: <laughs>
2: Don. Little Lord Fatleroy <laughs> I
11: say it was Kipling. And I say it was Shakespeare. Kipling. Shakespeare! Don, I can't understand you. I apologize to you for last week. I asked you to say to dinner, And you start another argument. But I didn't start an argument. I'm only telling you you're wrong. And you're too hard-headed to admit it. West! Don Wilson, I'll thank you to leave my house and never darken my doorstep again. All right, I'll go. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hmm.
2: I never saw a guy like Don Wilson. Always arguing, even when he's wrong.
9: But he wasn't wrong, Jack. You were wrong. Shakespeare did say that, not Kipling. I say it was Kipling. Well, I'm not going to stay here and get the argument with you either. You're too stubborn. Goodbye. <laughs>
11: How do you like that?
9: For dinner,
2: sir. Hmm, dinner, sir. What are we going to do with the other two steaks?
11: I only cook one. What? The minute you said Kipling, I knew this was going to
13: happen. <laughs> oh, well, I'll come as soon as I put my violin away.
14: <laughs> Jack, we'll be back in just a moment. But first, smoke a lucky to feel your level best. Smoke a lucky to feel your level best. You see, Lucky's fine tobacco picks you up when you're low, calms you down when you're tense. It's good to know that fine tobacco can do this for you. And that's why it's so important that you select and smoke the cigarette of fine tobacco, Lucky Strike. For as every smoker knows, L S M F T, L S M F T, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. No wonder Lucky Strike is the overwhelming favorite of tobacco experts. For more independent auctioneers, buyers, and warehousemen smoke luckies regularly than the next two leading brands combined. So smoke a lucky to feel your level best. Get on the right level, the lucky level, where there's real joy in living, where it's fun to be alive. The lucky level where you feel your best and do your best. Smoke a lucky to feel your level best. Smoke a lucky to feel your level best. Get on the lucky level where it's fun to be alive. Get a carton of luckies and get
2: started today.
11: Boss, Well, what are you looking for?
2: I'm looking for that book I was reading last night, that book of Kipling. The
11: book you were reading last night? Well, that was Shakespeare.
2: But on the cover it said Kipling.
11: That's the man you borrowed it from, Sam Kipling. (laughs) Oh, yes.
2: Don, and now I'll have to apologize to Don Wilson again. Ah, I'll give him a steak, and he'll be
8: happy.
15: This is NBC, the national broadcasting company.
5: Well, as you can tell, the professor is such an emotional fellow, can barely contain his excitement, or his terror, or his stress. And how about Don Wilson starting all those arguments by being correct? I mean, come on, Wilson. Naturally, of course, this ignorant on Jack's part was not only a great show of where his character was allowed to go, but this gag in particular was carryover from the previous week where Jack and Don fought over the Pilgrim Landing while at Mary's house for Thanksgiving, a script that was refashioned from a prior script done in 1944, where there was an argument instead about who said the immortal phrase, don't give up the ship which, if Jack had Google, he could have clearly noted correctly that Don was right. It was Captain James Lawrence and not John Paul Jones. Ah, well, if he did have Google, we wouldn't have a lovely comedy routine, now would we? But, of course, wasn't it also lovely to hear what Jack could do with the fiddle to bolster the characteristic of being lousy? When, in fact, there was an entire special and series of times on his own program where you can hear the earnesty in which he tries to play adequately. Sure, he's not an amazing fiddle player, but he tried hard and came out wonky on the other side, only to find that he had an uncommon gift to use for good. Because of his reputation with the violin, he was able to begin engaging in concert performances across the country for audiences who may not pay five bucks to say, see the State Symphony in action, but would gladly pay 25, 50, or 100 smackaroos just to watch Jack give a bad concert. These many benefit concerts organized by renowned violinists like Isaac Stern and Stuart Canaan would allow Jack to raise millions of dollars for pension funds for state symphony orchestras, as well as sell a concert special. Carnegie Hall salutes Jack Benny to CBS Television for a large sum, which, in addition to the ticket sales for the gala event itself, would net an additional $250,000 in 1961, which is the equivalent of $2,282,633.78 in today's dollars. So that sum from the television sale and the ticket prices themselves, that money all went to the contribution to the funds needed to save and preserve Carnegie Hall. And Isaac Stern was the spearhead of this campaign unquestionably. His work is legendary in this field in making sure we have Carnegie Hall today. But a bad fiddler definitely had a hand in ensuring the majestic hall is still standing proud to this very moment. According to Irving Fine's book, Jack Benny, an Intimate Biography, the estimated total of Benny's fundraising by the end of Jack's life in 1974 can be estimated at a whopping $5,901,000 for State Symphony Orchestra pension funds and other charities. Today, that is a whopping $53,879,287.73, all from one scratchy violin. The bigger benefit beyond the money was that Through Jack, the world of classical music became more accessible. Those who may not have dared to go near a supposedly stuffy and snooty crowd of classical music would have a gateway in the form of their favorite comedian, sharing the thing he truly loved till the end of his days, the sound of classical music. It's a gift he gave the world and one that will reflect in our final episode this evening. We will be going back a few years to the 1945-46 season, to an episode that caps off a long-running contest in the Benny world, the I Can't Stand Jack Benny Contest. A contest where listeners were asked to send in eloquent letters in 50 words or less of why they couldn't stand Jack Benny. And so this contest was held for weeks and for weeks. And by the time it had ended, with all the judges, including Goodman Ace of the Easy Aces and Peter Laurie and the Honorable Fred Allen presiding over these entries, the final winner would be Carol P. Craig Sr. of Pacific Palisades, California. His winning entry would read lovingly in the grand scheme of Jack's career. His winning entry would be read aloud in a rather sweethearted manner by Jack's long-suffering next-door neighbor with his wife listening with bated breath. And who were Jack's neighbors on the show? None other than Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume. Or, as they are known in my head, Benita, Oh, Ronnie! Ronnie, where are you? Hume. And Ronald, I'm in the library, Benita! Coleman. Taking, of course, from their traditional entrance to the many appearances they had on Jack's show. The esteemed acting couple's hesitancy to appear on a comedy program was alleviated carefully, and from 1945 onward, they would be forever associated with Jack's lovable crew. The pair proved so lovely for comedy... That they eventually got their own comedy series created by Fibber McGee and Molly writer Don Quinn. What is it called, you ask? Why, the Halls of Ivy. It's a show we should do a radio review on with somebody soon. But, lastly, before we get into this episode, I shall note that much of it takes place at a concert being given at the LA Philharmonic by the aforementioned Isaac Stern, who makes his first ever appearance on the Benny program here. There was a Bit of selfishness on Jack's part here, getting Stern aboard, for not only was he getting an esteemed guest star, but it would be a chance for him to geek out, as it were, with somebody in the music world that he greatly admired. Jack's love of playing was without question, but his love of listening to and appreciating music, whether by himself or with his daughter Joan, is an understated sentiment. And tonight, on our final show, we shall end it the way Jack may have appreciated it by listening to one of his favorite musicians play the music he loved so much. So once more, let us tune in the radio of yesteryear where we are whisked off to February 3rd, 1946 for one last episode of...
0: The Jack Benny program. Quality of product is
1: essential to continuing
0: success.
1: Let that famous
0: chant remind you that lucky strike means fine tobacco. So round, so firm, so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. LSMFT, LSMFT. L-S-M-F-T. Right you
2: are. Yes, sir. Lucky strike means fine tobacco.
4: So round, so firm, so fully
12: packed,
2: so free and easy on the draw.
12: At 49, American.
4: L-S-M-F-T. Lucky strike means fine tobacco. Yes, lucky strike means fine tobacco. Here's what Mr. Elvin
1: Bradley Hicks, independent tobacco auctioneer of Wilson, North Carolina, said. Season after season at the auctions, I've seen Lucky Strike buy fine, light tobacco. Tobacco that gives a better taste in smoke. I've smoked Lucky's for 17 years. Yes,
2: sir. In a cigarette, it's the tobacco that counts. And Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. So for your own real, deep down smoking enjoyment, smoke that smoke of fine tobacco, Lucky Strike.
0: Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Larry Stevens, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight Jack Benny is taking Mary to a concert at the Philharmonic Auditorium given by one of the world's greatest violinists, Isaac Stern. As we look in on Jack, he's at home dressing for the occasion. Rochester,
2: I still think they're a little too short. They barely reach my ankles.
3: Maybe I can let the cuffs out.
2: No, if you let the cuffs out, they'll be too long. A drag. Gosh, I wish they fit better.
3: What's the difference, boss? After you put your pants on, who sees your underwear?
8: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, I guess so. You're certainly going to a lot of trouble getting dressed tonight.
2: Well, Rochester, all the important people in town will be at the concert. After all, Isaac Stern is one of the world's greatest violinists.
3: Oh, come now, boss. You play the violin as good as he does.
2: No, I don't, Rochester, no.
3: Oh, yes, you do. I do not. Well, I think so.
2: Rochester, you've never even heard Isaac Stern.
3: Well, take advantage of it, boss. Take advantage.
8: <laughs>
2: oh, I see. You know, Rochester, maybe if I had followed my musical career, it might be me giving that violin concert tonight. Me, Yasha Benny. (laughs) I can just picture the scene. As I walk out on the stage, the spotlight falls on me. Me, Yasha Benny. Confidently, I lift my violin and tuck it under my chin. I raise my bow. 5,000 pairs of eyes are staring at me.
3: Say, Yossi, you better put your pants
8: on.
2: (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, help me. You know, Rochester, it's a little unfair. I have to go through life being a clown, a buffoon, while inside, deep down inside, I have a yearning for the finer things.
3: You could have some of those things, boss, if you'd just loosen up
2: a little. I suppose so, but then, again, you do have to think of the future. After all, Rochester, I haven't got much money.
3: I don't know. Every time I turn your mattress over, Wall Street drops three
8: points.
2: <laughs> Rochester, let's drop the subject and just help me get ready for the concert. Hand me my dress shirt. Here you are, boss.
3: White tie or black?
2: The white tie and my tails, too. I haven't worn this suit in a long time. How do my tails look?
3: Pretty good, boss, but you shouldn't have had the tail starched.
2: Starched? Well, I figured it would hold him in place.
3: I know, but when you bend over, you look like a sparrow!
8: <laughs>
2: no, I never thought about that. <sharp inhale> Come in! Hello, Phil. you, Jackson. Well, well, look at our little boss all dressed up. My, my, my! What new drive-in is opening tonight? <laughs> Phil, I'm not going to a drive-in. I'm going to the Philharmonic. Isaac Stern is playing. Yeah? Against who? (laughs) Against nobody. He's a soloist. He plays the violin. You know, it wouldn't hurt you to go to a concert once in a while. Never saw a guy take less of an interest in his profession. What do you mean, no interest? You know darn well that I'm a musician. Phil, just because you have a picture of Petrillo tattooed on your chest doesn't mean you're a musician. You and that band of yours. Now wait a minute, Jackson. You've been riding my boys long enough. My orchestra is not as bad as you so unprovocatively infer. Unpro what? Huh? No, you don't. I ain't gonna try that one again. <laughs> no, no, Phil, go ahead. i like to see how it comes out the second time. I will mean, go ahead. Okay, my orchestra is not as bad as you so unprovocatively infer. Say, that's pretty good. So where'd you pick up that word? Phil. Bill, answer me. Wait till I get this knot out of my tongue. <laughs> I thought it would throw you. Well, it's getting late. I got to leave now. Meet Mary in front of the auditorium. I'll get it.
0: Hello? Hello, Jack. This is Don Wilson. Oh, hello, Don. What do you want? Well, I heard you were going to Isaac Stern's concert tonight, and I was just wondering if you could get a couple of tickets for me. Well, I don't think so, Don. It's been sold out for weeks. Oh, gee, that's a shame. I'd love to go. I'd even pay double the price. Well, I'm afraid it's... You would?
2: Well, no, Mary's probably dressed already. I'm sorry, Don. There's nothing I can do for you. Well,
0: thanks just the same, Jack. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh,
2: say, Don, I want to
0: congratulate you for being chosen by the editors as radio's best announcer. Well, thanks, Jack, but uh, I really can't take credit for that. What do you mean? Well, look at the wonderful material I have to work with. How can I miss with... L S M F T. L S M F T. But Don, your dictionary. Lucky has strike to... means fine tobacco. So round, so firm, so fully packed. Look, Don. So free and easy diction, on the draw. The diction. With men who know tobacco best, it's Lucky's two to one. Diction. I've been smoking Lucky's for now to twenty five years because they're made of the finest... Don, milk- goodbye. <laughs>
8: hmm.
0: Hey, Jackson, what did you hang up on him for? You probably hurt Don's feelings. Yeah, I guess you're
2: right, Phil. I'll call him back and apologize. The lighter, the naturally mild in the Thank you all for calling me back, sir. Goodbye. Hmm, hurt his feeling First place, how are you going to get through all that fat? Well, I got to run along now. Goodbye, Phil. Go so
8: long,
2: Jackson. And, Ross, so you can have the rest of the night off. Thanks, boss. When will you be back? Tonight.
3: I only got 35 cents. You can't lose a weekend on that.
8: <laughs>
3: I guess not. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>
6: Here I am,
7: Mary.
6: Here I am, right over here.
7: Okay, Jack, just a minute. I'm sorry, sailor, but he showed up.
2: (laughs) Mary, come here. Who are you talking to?
7: Oh, some sailor. His boat just anchored at Hollywood and Vine.
2: (laughs) Well, here we are, Mary, at the Philharmonic. How do I look?
7: Mm, Certainly dressed swanky for the concert. White tie, top hat, and a bag of peanuts.
2: Well, I thought you might enjoy something after the show Uh, Let's go in
7: But, Jack, the main entrance is around the corner
2: I know, but I gotta go backstage and see Isaac Stern first Come on I wonder where his dressing room is Maybe it's around here somewhere This this must be it right here Come in Uh, Mr. Stern? Yes, I'm Isaac Stern Mr. Stern, this is Miss Livingston. How do you do? How do you do? And I'm Jack Benny.
7: Jack Benny?
2: Yes. Uh, You see, when I heard you were giving a concert in Los Angeles, I sent you money for two tickets, knowing that you'd get me the best seats available.
1: Oh, yes, yes, Mr. Benny. I have the tickets right here. Here you are.
2: Thanks. Wait a minute. These tickets are $1.10. I distinctly remember sending you I
1: did my best Mr Benny but the house was sold out and they didn't have any more seats available at the price you requested oh so I added 30 cents of my own money and <laughs> <laughs>
8: Well
2: thank you very much Mr Stern I hope I didn't impose on you too much you see you being a concert violinist naturally I felt that we Have something in common. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. We have something in common?
7: Uh, Yes, Jack's violin has four strings, too.
2: (laughs) Mary. (laughs) Mary, please.
7: Jack, give Mr. Stern the 30 cents, your and Let's go.
2: Oh, yes, yes. Just a minute. Here you are. Ten, twenty, twenty-five... 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. Uh, There you are, Mr. Stern. Thank you.
7: Okay, Jack, put on your shoe and let's go. Yeah, yeah.
2: Goodbye, Mr. Stern. And thanks for getting my tickets. You're welcome. Goodbye. Come on, Mary. Tickets, tickets, please. Hold your own tickets. Here you are. Thank you. Stairway to your left, please. Come on, Mary. Oh, Usher, where are these seats? Uh, stairway to your left, please. Come on, Mary. Oh, Usher. Usher, where are these seats?
1: Yeah, let me see. Uh, Row A, seats three and five. You see that last aisle over there?
2: Oh, yes, yes, good.
1: Well,
0: take the stairway right next to it. Oh, (laughs) my goodness.
8: Gosh,
2: what a climb.
7: Oh, Jack, I can't go on. Give me another peanut.
8: (laughs)
2: Here you are. Oh, usher.
8: Yes. <laughs> are these... Are...
2: are these seats in this balcony? Yes, right over here.
7: Gee, this is awfully high, isn't it?
2: We used to think so, but now they can reach us by radar.
8: <laughs> <laughs> Don't be funny.
2: Just show us to our seats. Just follow me. Here you are. Your seats are right here. Thank you. Say, these seats are all right, Mary. I can relax and put my feet up on the railing. And you better take your hat off. The spotlight will burn a hole through
8: (laughs) it. I'll
2: watch it. I'll watch it. Say, Mary, we may be in the top balcony, but at least we're in the front row. Can you see the stage all right?
8: No,
7: but I got a wonderful view of Catalina.
2: (laughs) That's a painting on the wall. Here, have a peanut.
7: Gee, there's sure a lot of people here tonight.
2: Yeah, this place is certainly... Hey, Mary, look. Look way down there. Isn't that Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman? Where? Way down there below us, to
4: the left of that cloud.
7: (laughs) Ronnie, weren't we lucky to get such good seats?
4: We certainly were, Benita.
7: Mr. Stern plays the Mendelssohn concerto.
4: Well, now let's see. He's going to play a sonata by César Fran, then uh oh yes, here it is, the Mendelssohn concerto. And he follows with La Campanella by Paganini.
8: Which one of those
7: numbers do you like the best?
4: Oh, it doesn't make any difference to me. I just came here to get away from chicory chick chilla chilla. I know he won't play.
8: No,
7: Jack, that isn't Mr. and Mrs. Coleman. I'm sure it is. Oh, Ronnie! Ronnie, Benita! Yoo-hoo! Jack, Jack, everybody's looking up at us with their binoculars. Let them look.
8: They're
2: jealous because we know the Coleman.
3: Oh, Ronnie!
7: Ronnie, Yoo-hoo! Ronnie, isn't that Jack Benny up there trying to get our attention?
4: Yes, it, it's embarrassing, but don't look up.
8: <laughs> well, uh, maybe we should at least
9: wave to him. After all, he is our next-door neighbor.
4: Benita, that is a situation which the housing shortage prevents me from doing anything about.
8: Yes. I'm going
9: to so much trouble to attract your attention. He's dropping little bits of paper. Oh, he's dropping peanut shells. Now,
4: if he spits, there's going to be trouble. What's he doing way up there, anyway?
7: Perhaps his doctor recommended a higher altitude.
4: Where he's sitting is cheaper than the Alps. It's higher, too. So it is.
7: (laughs) Well, anyway, dear, he won't be throwing any more peanuts.
4: Oh, how do you know? I
7: just got hit on the head with the bag.
4: Remarkable. He must be using a Norton bum sight.
2: (laughs) that awful, Mary? I just can't seem to attract their attention.
7: Oh, Ronnie! Ronnie, Benita, you-hoo! Jack, don't lean so far over the rail!
6: Ronnie,
4: (laughs) you-hoo! Yes, it's awful. He just won't give it up. I (laughs) beg your pardon, sir, but I think there's somebody trying to get your attention. No. My attention? Yes, that man
0: up there hanging from the rail by his heels. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes.
4: You know, Benita, I thought that the horn blows at midnight would keep him home for a couple of years. (laughs) Well then, I guess some people don't know when. Ronnie,
7: what was that thing that just fell in your lap?
4: Oh, for heaven's sake! What is it? A toupee.
6: <laughs> A toupee. Do you think it belongs?
4: I'm afraid so. Look at the laundry mark. L S M F T. And look what it says right. Uh, look what it says right below it. If lost, Will Finder, please read the lost and found columns in the Beverly Hills newspapers. The article in question will be referred to as a cocker spaniel with a cold nose and a part on the side.
8: (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
7: look, Ronnie, they're starting to dim the lights.
2: Oh, darn it, I almost had their attention. Oh, look, honey, they're starting to dim the lights.
7: Don't get fresh, mister. I happen to be here with an escort.
2: Mary, it's me. It slipped off. (laughs)
7: Well, put your hat on, you look awful, and be quiet. The concert's about to begin. Yeah,
2: here comes Isaac Stern
8: now.
4: Your check's ready for your coat. Uh, Boy, here's my check. I know you don't, Bob. I was... Ronnie! Jack, Jack, old boy. What a surprise seeing you here. Yes, yes. Wasn't the concert wonderful? It certainly was. And I loved the Mendelssohn concerto. Well, I did too. However, I felt that he had just a little too much pizzicato
2: in the Andante. (laughs) Uh, Didn't you? Uh, No. Oh. (laughs) Well, it sounded that way by the time it got up to me.
8: Here
4: your coach, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. Well, good night, Jack. My best to marry. Good night, Ronnie. Give my love to Benita. I will. Oh, by, by, by the way, Jack, did you lose a Cocker Spaniel? <laughs> Why, well, yes,
2: yes.
4: Well, don't worry. Here, Lassie has come home.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye,
4: Ronnie. You know, Benita, I think that's one of the finest concerts I ever heard.
7: Absolutely wonderful. Give me a cigarette, will you?
4: Of course, I have some right here in my overcoat. Oh, I had some when I... I say this isn't my coat. There must have been a mix-up at the cloakroom. Are
8: you sure?
4: Yes, I'm positive I had... <laughs> Certainly, look at the label. Why, this is Jack Benny's coat. Jack Benny's? Yes.
8: Oh,
9: well, tomorrow then we'll have to... Well, Ronnie, what are
4: you looking at? Huh? Oh, oh, it's this address book I found in Benny's coat pocket.
8: Address book?
4: Yes. You know, he's always boasting about his influential friends. Well, listen to this first name. (laughs) Gladys Zibisco, Gladstone 0338.
7: Gladys Zibisco.
4: Here's a note he's written alongside her name. It says, do not kiss too hard, has pivot to. (laughs) And listen to this next name, Marcella Fink. And then he has in parenthesis, approach from the right, she's left-handed.
8: Oh, he has such
9: interesting friends. Oh, what's that? Folded sheet of paper that just fell on the floor. Well,
4: oh, Benita, look, it's, it's one of his contest letters.
9: Oh, you mean the I Can't Stand Jack Benny contest?
4: Yes, and there's a little notation on it that says, this letter was written by Carol P. Craig, Sr., And won first prize.
7: First prize? Oh, Ronnie, I wondered what the winning letter was right. Read it, please.
4: All right. It says, I can't stand Jack Benny because he fills the air with boasts and brags and obsolete, obnoxious gags. The way he plays his violin is music's most obnoxious sin. His cowardice alone, indeed, is matched by his obnoxious greed. And all the things that he portrays show up my own obnoxious ways. Now, you know, Benita, that's very clever.
7: Yes, it has such a good thought behind it.
4: Yes. And all the things that he portrays show up my own obnoxious way. You know, Benita, maybe the fellow that wrote this letter is right. The things that we find fault with in others are the same things that we tolerate in ourselves.
2: That's so
8: true, Ronnie.
4: It certainly is.
0: Isaac Stern was accompanied by Alexander Zarkin. Jack will be back in just a moment, but first, here is my good friend, L.A. Speed Riggs. That
1: says it. Lucky strike means fine
0: tobacco. So round, so firm, so fully packed. So free and easy on the draw. Of course. L-S-M-F-T. Many things may change with the years, but here's one thing you can depend on always. Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Yes, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. The finer, the lighter, the naturally milder Lucky Strike tobacco. This fine Lucky Strike tobacco means real deep down smoking enjoyment for you.
4: So smoke that smoke of fine tobacco, Lucky Strike. So round, so firm,
0: so fully packed. So free and easy on the draw.
4: The famous tobacco auctioneers heard on tonight's programmer,
0: Mr. L.A. Speedriggs of Goldsboro, North Carolina.
6: <speaking in the background>
0: and Mr. F.E. Boone of Lexington, Kentucky.
6: At 49, 49 American. And
0: this is Basil Risedale speaking for Lucky Strike, the cigarette of fine tobacco. LSMFT! 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 Certain facts are plain. It takes fine tobacco to make a fine cigarette. And lucky strike means fine tobacco. Yes, first, last, and always, lucky strike means
4: fine tobacco.
7: Say, hey Jack, wasn't Isaac Stern wonderful?
2: Absolutely terrific.
7: Jack, I'll make you a sporting proposition. What is it? I'll break my leg if you'll break your violin. LAUGHTER
2: I will not. <laughs> After all, Mary, I... Say, wait a minute. This isn't my coat. I've got on somebody else's coat. What? Look, look at the label. It's Ronald Coleman. Funny. I must have made a mistake at the cloakroom. I wonder what he's got in his pocket.
7: <laughs>
2: oh, for heaven's sake, Lori. Mary, look. Isn't this
10: cute? Well,
7: what is it?
10: A yo-yo. <laughs>
7: Sweet. Good night, folks.
0: This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company.
5: And all the things that he portrays show up my own obnoxious ways. A sentiment that does still hold true. Wait, can I get one more uh, Ronald Coleman in? If I were king. Yes, if I were king. Yes, okay, I'm done, I swear. I want to thank the Ballyhoo audience on that note for spending an evening with me listening to my favorite comedian, And I hope you took home with you not just the laughs, but also the lessons, whether it was stories of history, contextual understanding, or simply the knowledge of doing what you love to do, no matter how it is perceived by anyone, whether you're a podcaster or a fiddler. And I think that Jack, with the help of the final pages of his memoirs, should have the last word. Everything good that happened to me happened by accident. I think it was like this my whole life. I'm not an aggressive person. I am not one of those men who knows where he's going when he's a young man. I was not filled with ambition or fired by a drive toward a clear-cut goal. I never knew exactly where I was going. My whole life, it's, it's as if I were a passenger on a train. And I don't want to be on that train, but I have no desire to get off of it either. I don't know where the train is going. But meanwhile, I will count the telephone poles and watch the scenery and see what the other passengers have in mind. And then when the train arrives at the last station, I get off. I look around. I like the place where I am. I don't know exactly how I got here, but I'm glad to be here just the same. And I am glad in that very way to have shared a bit of my passion with all of you here listening to this week's episode. Next week, some more curse words and crazy imitations of Jeremy Stewart, I promise. Until next time,
2: good night, folks.
6: J-E-L-L-O
5: This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack.